Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast, a production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. BFFT. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald face truth. Marshall turns, ready, left-handed, comes back with a curveball, and that is whacked out of sight on an 0-2 pitch. So Manny Ramirez hits it almost to the back row in center field. The fans are saying throw it back, and the Dodgers now lead 5-2. Vince Scully, you know him. Maybe you loved him. Maybe you're a Dodger fan. Maybe you're not. But you probably respected the storyteller that Vince Scully was. He passed away yesterday, and damn it, Bill Russell, Vince Scully, in the same week. Come on. I want to talk about broadcasting, and I want to talk about Scully in particular, because what I think made him great, it wasn't just that he had a great voice. He did. He had a great radio voice. It wasn't just that he came along at a time in which radio was at the forefront in sports. Play-by-play, television hadn't taken over yet, and Vin Scully started on the radio broadcast and then uh, went into television and became the TV face of the Dodgers and other entities. But I think what part of what made Vin Scully great was just the fact that he understood how to tell a damn story. It's a real shortage of that going on. Everybody wants to shortcut Nobody wants to make you laugh. Nobody wants to make you cry anymore. Nobody wants to make you wait for that either anymore. Get to the point. We don't have time for this. But I think part of what made Vin Scully and maybe some of the other broadcasters of his generation fantastic, legendary presence uh, in sports uh, were the fact that the guy could tell a story. And I also think he benefited, of course, by virtue of the fact that the Dodgers were in Los Angeles. Major market, Vince Scully got some footprint nationally. But he was fantastic at what he did. And in, in to me, the, the great calls, like everybody wants to talk about Kirk Gibson's call, the original home run there, that call of Gibson hitting the home run against the A's off Dennis Eckersley and, you know, hobbling around the bases, pumping his fist, or Bill Buckner in the 86 World Series. You know, the ball gets by him, uh, gets behind first base, and, you know, Phil Knight, or Phil Knight, uh, Knight's, Ray Knight scores, and Vin Scully goes bananas, and the Mets go bananas in 1986 and world champions. But I think part of what makes Vin Scully great was just the fact that on a Wednesday day game, Dodgers playing against the Atlanta Braves or the Giants or the Reds, Vin Scully could make the bottom of the third inning feel like it was must-listen-to radio. And here is Vin Scully telling a story. The Dodgers and Jackie Robinson many, many years ago in the early 50s went to Cincinnati. In Cincinnati, Jackie received a couple of threatening letters that were really taken seriously. I mean, really. And the police presence was overwhelming. I remember they told me there were sharpshooters on top of the laundry back of left field, on the post office off first base, on the roof of Crosley Field itself. I mean, everywhere I looked, there was someone ready to pull the trigger. And the Dodgers had a meeting 
before the game as they usually do but this one was very tense the thought that somebody might take a shot at Jackie Robinson and all of a sudden the silence was broken by the left fielder of the Dodgers big blonde happy-go-lucky left fielder named Gene Hermansky and Hermansky broke the silence in the room by saying I've got it and everybody turned and looked questioningly at Gene as if say what and Hermansky said we'll all wear number 42 and so no one will know which one is Jackie Robinson well of course that broke up the room and it sounds like a little funny story that should die in the past however it came to pass there would be a game where everyone wears number 42. There's Vin Scully on the call telling the story of Jackie Robinson in the jersey number 42. I just love that the game's going on in the background. The PA announcer's announcing a batter. And this is what I thought made Vin Scully great. Like, you know, a lot of broadcasters can call balls and strikes. A lot of people can tell you what's going on in the game. But there was a relaxed field that made me and probably you and maybe your parents or grandparents feel that when you were listening to Vin Scully or watching a game in which he was the broadcaster on television, you felt like he was with you sitting in the living room. And there are other broadcasters who have done this, and I think people listening in the state of Oregon will, will think about Bill Shonley today, the mayor of Rip City and the legendary Blazers broadcaster who's in his 90s. And they'll think about Jerry Allen, who is the play-by-play -play voice of the Oregon Ducks. And they'll think about Mike Parker, who is the play-by-play -play broadcaster at Oregon State. They all hold a special place in your uh, sports uh, kingdom when you are a sports fan, a broadcaster uh, next to the team, and in some cases even bigger than the team. Uh, a broadcaster can really uh, connect you to your team and connect to the fan base. But for me, it was Vince Gulley connecting the dots. It was a summer baseball game. I'm listening in the backyard or I'm watching on television and – you know, maybe the game is kind of meandering along, and maybe maybe it's the beauty of baseball more than anything else. Just the pace of the game lent itself to storytelling. Here's Vin Scully telling a story about beards. This is in the top of the second inning in April of 2016, early season game with the Padres and the Dodgers. Here's Vin Scully. I'm not going to do it now because there's two out and the base is empty, but sometime during the game, if you've been like the way I have been, looking at players with these big beards, I decided I'm going to do a little research on beards. So during the game, yeah, there's plenty of them around. We'll tell you a couple of stories as we go through it. Two down, second inning, no score. And first pitch, fastball, first right. First of all, they say way back to the dawn of humanity, Beards evolved, number one, because ladies like them. And number two, it was the idea of frightening off adversaries and wild animals. Here's the one-strike pitch swung on and missed strike two. In fact, it was so serious, if you look it up, there's a divine mandate for beards in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. No balls and two strikes, they count. Stripling. From the first base side of the rubber, strike two pitch to Nars is promptly hit into right field and it lands in front of Kike for a base hit. So Nars, a two out single to right, and that will bring up Jamile Weeks. Weeks. There became a time where Greek dramatists 
mind the popular prejudice against clean-shaven men. Back then, clean-shaven men were looked as the, oh, maybe effeminate. And then along came Alexander the Great. That's another story. Alexander the Great was not only great, but he also thought he was the greatest looking man in the world. Oh, absolutely. Stripling ready, delivers, gets his strike. And Alexander the Great said, there is no reason to cover up my beautiful face with a beard. And so all of a sudden, it started to disappear. I love the idea that he felt he was so beautiful. One, one strike, Stripling ready, looks over at Norris, back to the hitter, and that's lined into left field for a base hit. Norris goes to second, so back-to-back -back base hits with two out, and the batter will be Adam Rosales. So here's Scully in the top of the second with two outs, and thank goodness that we got a couple of base runners here because now Vin Scully's going to be able to tell us more about the beards, and I'm waiting for the resolution on this story. It's part of the art of storytelling. It's part of why when your kids tune into YouTube and they're watching some YouTube kid uh, who's got a channel with a million followers and he's un unwrapping uh, you know, some Pokemon cards or he's opening a package or uh, you know, revealing something. There's some brain chemistry that goes on here that very badly needs resolution. So I'm on board with what Vince Scully's doing here, and I'm going to let him continue. After Alexander the Great wanted clean-shaven people, it got so that the University of Paris banned long-bearded men from the lecture halls. That's back in 1533, and a few years later, the city's chief court outlawed beards on judges and advocates. And then you got to be the Russian strongman who liked a shaved face but long wigs. The first pitch in for a strike. Did you know that the first woman female king of Egypt wore a fake beard to convince people that she was a man? Yeah, her name was Hathsput. Here's the strike one pitch on the way. Stripling's pitch in the dirt. Throw down at Utley. Not in time. One ball and one strike to count. Then, of course, you come to Abraham Lincoln, who was clean-shaven. And a little 11-year-old girl named Grace Bedell, she said to Mr. Lincoln, if you would grow a beard, my daddy has a beard, and my mother will tease him to vote for you. So Abraham Lincoln grew a beard. And, of course, that came up when uh, his chief rival said to him, you're two-faced. And Abraham Lincoln said, if I were two-faced, would I have the face that I'm wearing now? So he answered him pretty well. Two and one account. Stripling in a little trouble here. The 2-1 pitch on the way is taken first by 2-2. Two and two. In 1976, the Supreme Court ruled that Americans do not have a legal right to grow beards or mustaches as they choose if their employer demands a clean face. 
Ah, yes, the beards. Here's the 2-2 pitch on the way. Stripling set over the top. Pitch is low, ball three. There is Vin Scully. Basically, the soundtrack of summer. Died on Tuesday night. He was 94. We got a great show for you today. We're going to talk to the president of Arizona State's NIL effort. They've launched one. They're live. We'll talk to Matt Preem, 24-7 Sports, about the Oregon Ducks. Dan Landing and the Ducks had their media day, their local media day today. You'll hear some sound from there. Plus, uh, more ahead on the latest on the Pac-12. Why is the Big 12 so insecure? We'll dive into that as well on today's show, but I want you to leave it locked in. You got the BFT statewide. Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Well, we've seen a lot of collectives that have popped up across the Pac-12 conference and other places in college football. Oregon's got Division Street, uh, UCLA has the Bruin Fan Alliance, Washington State has the Cougar Collective, among others. Arizona State is in the game now, the Sun Angel Collective. Jeffrey Berg is the president of it, and he's joining us now. Is it really the Sun Angel Collective? Is that right? That is the name of the collective. I love it. Uh, give me an, thanks for joining us, Jeff, first of all. Give me an idea on uh, you know, sort of the genesis of this and, and uh, how it all started. Absolutely. There were about five of us who were on the Sun Devil Club board, that is the athletic department board at ASU, uh, in various leadership capacities. But the five of us got together. We recognized that something needed to be done in the NIL space, as um, certainly you would agree. And we just tried to figure out how to make it happen. Um, so we had some meetings. We talked about different structures, uh, what would be the best way to engage uh, ASU's large alumni base, and we just started putting ideas together. This happened, we started, first met probably towards the end of uh, last year. So it's been, you know, eight months in the making, and uh, we're, here we are. Give me an idea of how hard it is to set one of these up, because I think there's a lot of confusion in the public and maybe in the media as to how these things get set up. What's the process of that? Sure. A lot of that is going to be the great answer, it depends. Um, and what it's going to depend on is if you've got one donor who's deciding that they're going to fund it with all their own cash, they don't necessarily care about the tax impacts of any of that. And if that's the case, it's pretty easy, right? Open a, uh, you know, start an entity, open a bank account, put the money in there, and uh, start putting deals together. That's, that's it. However, if you want to do something perhaps a little bit more complex, uh, especially if you want to try to set up a collective that's going to have members, uh, where those members are contributing on a regular basis, uh, those members may want to uh, feel connected to the program in some way, uh, that's where it becomes a, a lot more work, right? The schools can't participate in the collective process um, in really any meaningful way. They certainly can offer uh, support in, in some ways. Um, ASU has been a has been a great partner uh, with us lately in um, in doing what they can within the within the rules, but you know if you want to set one up like we are, that's going to be a five hundred one c three public charity so that our donors can uh, take a deduction for the contributions. The amount of legwork that goes into that uh, is, is is pretty enormous. All right, so people who want to give and you have a, a massive donor base. They can, make, they can make donations that are tax-deductible that go into this? 
So that's our intent. I want to be yeah. really clear that um, we are applying to the IRS for that 501c3 status. Uh, we have seen other schools do this and receive respons favorable responses um, from the IRS. So we feel good about the chances that it will be approved, but obviously uh, there's lots of examiners at the IRS. It's, it's possible that it, it could not work out. But right now we're working under the assumption that this will be successful. Give me an idea, because as you look around, how much rubbernecking goes on? And do you start looking at what Oregon's doing, Washington State's doing? Um, is there a blueprint for this out there, or do you kind of have to explore a little bit before you set it up? You know, you, you said uh, talked a little bit about it in, in the in the intro to this segment. Um, you know, with groups like Division Street, I don't think there's a lot of rubbernecking from from at least from our collective in terms of hey, what's Division Street doing and, and how can we emulate it? That's it, it. Really, is just a very different animal from from what we're trying to build. But there are uh, collectives out there that are more similar to ours, and certainly we look to those uh, for, for ideas, and, and, and certainly to the ones that have just decided to operate on a nonprofit basis and gotten those approval letters. We certainly look at those to see what did they do, how did they do it, how can we operate in a similar way to give ourselves the best chance of, of getting that approval. And then we do look at the overall landscape to see what people are doing that's innovative and unique that we may be able to bring uh, bring to the table. I'll give you one example recently of Alabama launching their uh, collective marketplace um, on campus or in stadium rather um, for, for, for merchandise. I think that's a fantastic idea and something that uh, we'll certainly be able to roll out at, um, at ASU if that's something we decide we want to do. Jeffrey Berg is our guest. He's the president of the Sun Devils Collective. It's called the Sun Angel Collective. i got to give you some credit because, like, you know, the university can't do this. You need a group of motivated gift givers, donors, uh, qualified individuals like yourself. Uh, I'm interested in kind of who's part of the board, but I just think it, it takes uh, some effort. It's, you know, this is a this is a side hustle for, for college football fans and alumni who care about the university. Um, you know, as you put this group together, is your expertise in finance or in tax, or where, where does it sit? Wow. wow. Uh, my, my, so my expertise is in finance and tax. Okay. Um, there you go. <laughs> I, I also have a, a fairly strong nonprofit background as well. So uh, those certainly were helpful. The, the rest of our board, though, brings some uh, in incredible expertise. Um, it, all of our board members, the five board members that we are launching with, are um, board members of the Sun Devil Club. I mentioned earlier that that is the uh, athletic department board of directors. And uh, certainly this is very separate from that, right? There's, uh, yeah. there's, there's no intermingling there, although we, we serve in both capacities. Um, but we've got you know individuals who's the, the CFO of a large family office. We've got uh, uh, Scott Harkey, who um, is the CEO of a large marketing firm. Uh, John Dorsey uh, has worked in the sports space um, for, for a long time and has done some unique stuff around uh, some startups and whatnot. Um, Chris Michaels is a huge booster to the university. Um, her and her husband have some uh, some large endowments on campus, so great, great philanthropic uh, partner of ours on the board as well. So that kind of rounds out our five and kind of the expertise there. And, and look, we'll continue to build that out. We've got some some people on our radar that we, we want to get involved as well. And then we've got uh, an advisory board that we made up of um, former former student-athletes. We've got Jake Plummer involved. We've got Brock Osweiler involved. 
uh, Omar Bolden, Jordan Simone. So, uh, and we're going to add to that as well. Give me an idea of, you know, you just launched it. Uh, what kind of uh, war chest do you have so far? So we are launching with pre with, with pre launch commitments of a little over a million dollars, and we have been uh, very fortunate to kind of watch the ticker come in and, and, and people join uh, from yesterday to today and um, sign up for monthly subscriptions. That's really going to be um, what we need to to have in the door. And so it, it's it's nice to see those monthly subscriptions that will add to this program, uh, you know, month over month and year after year. Give me an idea. Uh, I give a lot of credit real yeah. quickly to our donors that uh, supported us to get to that million-dollar point pre-launch. I mean, the, the only information they had was really uh, who the board members were, what our vision was, and our wiring instructions, right? Yeah. So there, <laughs> right. Was, there was a lot of trust that went into that. Give me an idea because you mentioned kind of the monthly. Is it subscriptions like or a monthly pledge that uh, an alumni who's living in Texas or Oregon or California can go, hey, I want to support Arizona State sports. Hey, I can give 50 bucks a month. Is, is, that, is that sort of the model here? That's exactly the model, right? They have the choice. You you could certainly make a one-time donation, but what we would prefer and hope that people do are see value in the recurring subscription model. Um, that recurring subscription model uh, entices people to uh, potentially step up to the next level. There's a variety of, of levels in there with um, different uh, givebacks uh, based on how much you contribute. Everything from you know, it could be a signed player gear, uh, apparel, uh, private meet and greets with certain players. So one of the things that, you know, this, the collectives are able to do that's pretty unique that uh, we haven't really been able to do before is give fans the opportunity to interact with their program and interact with the athletes uh, in a way that really hasn't been able to be done before. And so that's exciting. I like that. Uh, what has the reception been? Because I think one of the strengths of Arizona State is more than 500,000 alumni, 579,000. That is a massive uh, force if you can put, point them in the right direction. But what's the response been in the last 24 hours? The response has been fantastic, both from the media and from the fans. I think a lot of us get our fan feedback from Twitter these days because it's the easiest way to interact with folks or from social media in general. Um, but, you know, between message boards that you know, every school has and, uh, and social media, it has been overwhelmingly positive. A, a lot of thank yous for getting this up and going. Um, you know, uh, how can I get involved in a more meaningful way? To your point, uh, having 579,000 alumni uh, is, an, is a huge opportunity for us. There's a very, we need to hit just a very small percentage of them to be able to build out a, a massive month-over-month -month and year-over-year -year war chest. We're talking to Jeffrey Berg. He is the president of Arizona State's NIL Collective. It's called the Sun Angel Collective. Uh, the athletes there have to be excited about it. The coaches have to be excited about it. Is is there an aim here for the uh, for the group? Are you looking to reward athletes who have been inside the program for several years? Are you looking to uh, you know solicit input from the coaching staff to see hey uh, should we be uh, you know where do we allocate the dollars? How does that work? Um, well, we got to be really careful with, um, you know, how we coordinate with, uh, w with the school. And so uh, certainly we can't have conversations uh, directly with coaches about, you know, what deals should exist. Okay. Um, that said, our um, 
when we bring dollars in, we're going to allocate them, not evenly, but we're going to allocate them to three different buckets. Um, bucket number one would be team-wide areas of need, right? So these are probably smaller items, but, but things that need to be taken care of for the entire team. Um, the next area is going to be um, attracting top talent, and the third area will be rewarding loyalty. Right? There's certainly uh, uh, people on our team this year that had the option to go somewhere else to get a large NIL deal, and for whatever reason they uh, decided to stick, uh, stick with Arizona State. We want to be able to reward that in some way, and, to know, and for future athletes to come here, know that we re reward that. We're talking to Jeffrey Berg with the Sun Devil Collective, the NIL group. All right, there's a lot of us that are mildly uncomfortable or some, in some cases outright uncomfortable with all of this, but uh, I'm glad that it's not just like you know the SEC or the Big Ten that's participating in this. How important do you feel like this is to have a collective that's in place that can help kind of fuel the athletic department and reward the athletes that have been a part of it? It's incredibly important, uh, whether you like it or not. And we have, uh, you know, several people on our board that are not huge fans of it, and that includes both the athlete advisory board as, as well as as well as our board of directors. In terms of when I say not a big fan of it, right? Like we would have yeah. seen, preferred to see this develop a different way. Um, but this is the reality that we live in now. And so I think that you, if this is the way that the game is going to be played. We've got to play the game, and we've got to do it by the rules that are set out there that all of the other universities are playing by. Otherwise, we're not going to be able to get, uh, you know, get a roster that's um, you know, capable of winning games. Give me an idea, uh, as you looked at other collectives, did you get any kind of insight into what the other collectives are doing as far as the size of the deals? Because when I looked at the early deals, it, most of them were modest. It was, you know, $500 to $1,200 range. It, it was not all in football where I expected it to be. What did you see as you looked around and, and studied some other collectives? So there's, there's two kind of camps that the collectives seem to fall into. There's the very large, um, small number of donor collectives, right? So that could be anywhere from, let's call it, 1 to 15 um, large boosters get together and put together some amount of money. Usually those collectives will focus on uh, revenue sports. That's typically either football or basket or men's basketball. Um, and it, a lot of them lately have been giving out really big deals. To your point, you know, when this whole first thing started, I think everything starts in baby steps, that we saw, you know, maybe small local brands coming out, right? The local car dealership lends a car to, to someone or a, uh, a pizza place gets a local student athlete to post on social media about their, about their pizza spot. Certainly the initial deals were small, but as soon as people figured out how to get this going, you, you had these two groups. So the, the, small, the small number of donors, but high dollar, right? That is that group. And then there's these broad-based collectives that have, have started to form. These broad-based collectives are a lot more work to get up, especially if you want to do some sort of a uh, nonprofit angle to them. But they probably are, at least, at least for us, we are not going to be doing huge deals right out of the gate. Um, we, there's, we have to hold back some cash as well, right? We bring right. in, let's call it $2 million this year. We're not going to spend $2 million. 
this year. What we have seen happen on a lot of these collectors, especially the broad-based ones, the fundraising is huge in the first, let's call it, several months of ramp-up because there's a lot of excitement and press around the program. And then it, it, starts to, it starts to taper off a little bit. That's why the recurring uh, revenue uh, model is so important to this. But, you know, the, the big single-dollar donations, I, I can't count on someone perhaps to give me, if they gave me $250,000 pre-launch, I can't count on them to do that every year. Yeah, I think, you know, where I stand on this is people are saying, look, uh, you know, some people are uncomfortable with the collectives, but I think, you know, the more Pac-12 schools that have these collectives, the greater chance the Pac-12, aside from media rights dollars, has a chance to uh, have athletes that are doing uh, good things with endorsements and networking. And I think some of this stuff really, frankly, can turn into uh, career after sports is they're going to be networking with other business owners and entrepreneurs that have been successful. I, I would I agree with you 100 percent they're going to have opportunities to engage with the business community in ways that they they never have before I also think it ties the athletes to the community at least you know I'll, I'll speak for our collective but the the angle that we're taking to try to get this uh, nonprofit status is let's just uh, you know let's assume that there's a athlete who's really passionate about a local food bank or a youth services organization boys club girls club and, and they'd like to do something to help them. They can go out there and lend their time, lend their marketing. You know, if they've got a large Twitter following or a large Instagram following, they can lend their uh, marketing prowess or their, their, their followers to them in, in posting things. Um, but, you know, more so maybe going out and actually helping with, with the program. We can pay them for their name, image, and likeness in, do, in doing that. Um, the nonprofit gets the benefit of having this, you know, local uh, local quarterback or local uh, offensive line going out there to, to help them up. And it gets them involved with the community that they're in as well, especially if they happen to be from out of town. Jeffrey Berg, Sun Devil Collective. All right, before I cut you loose, the pitfalls that you want to avoid, there are some out there I think ultimately this thing's going to have to be regulated. But what pitfalls do you start out with as Arizona State going, look, these are the guidelines we closely need to follow? Uh, I think we need to be really careful uh, about making sure that the school is not seen as coordinating um, with us. And that's going to be, you know, probably forefront uh, for us because it's certainly something that's, that's not allowed. However, we are allowed to have a marketing agreement with the school just like any other business would. Um, and so to the extent, you know, that some people say, hey, you know, ASU wasn't really on board with this. They're not really helping out. I, I would say that that's, that that's false. You can look at our logo. We are one of the only schools out there that is actually using um, school trademarks in our logo, right? And so we got – if they were working against us, we would not have been able to get access to those assets and those marks. And we're able to do that because we're a marketing partner with them just like any other business might be. But with that, we need to make sure that the um, – the school isn't interacting with us improperly. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Hey, I really appreciate your time, Jeffrey, and your expertise. I wish you the best. I'm glad you guys got this set up because I know at Media Day, Herm Edwards was talking about how important it was and, uh, you know, that the kids on the uh, on his roster had access to things that kids on other rosters have. And so I think it, it levels the playing field a little bit with the Pac-12 and some of the others. But thank you for giving us your time and, how can people who are listening, who are Arizona State fans, get involved? 
Uh, I would love them to. Uh, I would ask that you go to our website at Sun Angels, at sunangelsplural.org. Uh, there you can sign up for uh, a one-time donation, but more importantly, what we'd love you for you to do is uh, sign up for a subscription and just help us out um, to build this NIL fund going forward. Uh, we need the help of all of those 579,000 alumni that are out there and hopefully listening. Jeffrey Berg, thank you from, uh, from Arizona. Appreciate you. You're welcome. Take care. All right, Arizona State's got the Sun Angel Collective. I like it. They're going recurring subscriptions uh, as part of their model. And, look, they have strength in numbers at Arizona State. I was looking hard at sort of the geography of their alumni base, 579,000 uh, Arizona State graduates uh, that are out there. And so they're really trying to tap into Arizona, of course, state of Arizona. California has 60,000 Arizona State alumni. Texas is the third largest state of ASU alumni where they reside. Texas has almost 18,000. Washington is fourth. That was interesting. Colorado, fifth. Then it goes Illinois, Florida, Oregon, eighth largest population of Arizona State alumni, New York and Virginia. There's your top ten. And so when you look at what is important to ASU's mission, and I wrote about it today at johnconzano.com, Look, what's important to the mission at Arizona State is Arizona, of course, the state of Arizona, and, and capturing that market for their alumni. But California and Texas become really interesting to them. And you're already in California if you're Arizona State because you're going to play the Bay Area schools in the Pac-12, and at least for the next couple of years, you're going to play the Southern California schools. But then after that, it's Texas. Because if you are Arizona State and you want to maximize your exposure – to your alumni base. You want to get Arizona, California, Texas, Washington, Colorado, Oregon, of within those states there, those six states, you would have access to 74% of your alumni base. It is really interesting. For those who think that Arizona State would be interested in jumping to the Big 12, the bigger possibility for ASU, or if I'm Arizona State, is I would love to see SMU, Houston, somebody like that added to the Pac-12 conference so I could get into Texas and get access to another 17,000, 18,000 Arizona State uh, graduates. Strength in numbers, that's their thing. They're trying to get 579,000 Arizona State graduates to all commit $20 a month. Uh, you know, it's like a 24-hour fitness gym membership model. But if they do that, they're going to have more money than anybody in the conference to spend, including Oregon in Division Street. I want you to leave it here. So much more ahead. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. There's a whole bunch of Big 12 fans who are hopping mad right now. I, I don't think they're mad. I think they're scared. I think sometimes anxiety gets mistaken for fear. I think often it does. I think people who are anxious or nervous will often have their actions be interpreted as, oh, they're scared. Really, they're just anxious. I think the Big 12 is anxious right now because... It's lost Texas and Oklahoma to the SEC. It doesn't appear that the Pac-12 is interested in merging with them. There's just no value. It doesn't make any sense. 
when you talk to the media experts out there that understand television households and valuations, they will tell you point blank, hey, uh, there's just not a lot there outside of the state of Texas. Even uh, the brands of the, of the Big 12 Conference, like Kansas, great basketball brand, has no football presence whatsoever. It's got, you know, geography that isn't favorable from a media market standpoint. But it's got, you know, again, basketball. But if you're a Kansas fan, you're awfully nervous right now because you've seen this conference disintegrate. You have seen the loss of the old Big 12 conference. Nebraska's gone and Colorado's gone and Texas A&M has gone to the SEC and there goes, uh, there goes Oklahoma and Texas. And what you have left is a conference that, you know, added Louisville and added Central Florida and added BYU. And, you know, it's, it's reaching. And, and Pac-12 fans who are also anxious probably can relate to that a little bit. But I, uh, I don't understand, or maybe I should, the Big 12 fan who is desperate for good news getting mad at the messenger when I tell you that the Pac-12 is looking at the Big 12 and it's, it's laughable. It's laughing. It's laughing at the Big 12. I talked to two athletic directors this morning, neither one of them in the state of Oregon, and came away from that conversation feeling like, hey, look, I'm reporting what I know. I'm uh, telling Pac-12 fans who subscribe at johncazano.com and want to know what's going on in the conference that the media rights window, the exclusive 30-day negotiating window, is coming to a close. It's supposed to close sometime today or tomorrow. So in the next uh, 20 hours or so, you'll see that window close. Uh, and I do believe that unless ESPN is making a home run offer, that we are going to see um, the Pac-12 wait. I think they're going to hold the number. I don't think they're going to make it public. I think they're going to wait. And I think they're going to wait for the Big Ten to finish, their options to expire, their deal to come into uh, crystal clarity, and then they will gauge the market based upon what the Big Ten conference has garnered from uh, their media partners, Fox and others. So what's left over is what the Pac-12 will have first crack at. And this is why I think the Big 12 Conference is so nervous and anxious and in some cases a little hostile. I think they are concerned because the Pac-12 will eat first, that there won't be anything left over for the Big 12 Conference. I think they are concerned that the Pac-12 has the Pacific time zone as a tremendous advantage over the Big 12 that is playing in the same region of the country and the same time zones as some of the SEC teams and some of the Big 10 teams. There's just not a lot that the Big 12 offers uh, above and beyond the Big 10 and the SEC. So if you're in the Big 12, like, you know, you got to hope Cincinnati or Central Florida or somebody, BYU, continues to matter, but you are marginal. And you've been marginalized in the same way that the Pac-12 has been marginalized. So uh, it's interesting to me to watch this. I reported this morning, I think I wrote like 2,000 words about the NIL Collective at Arizona State and Yogi Roth's book and the fact that the Pac-12's negotiating window is closing now and what I expect to happen is that we're not going to get resolution here. 
I think it could be as early as September before we get full resolution for the Pac-12. But there's some back-channeling that is going on right now. There are consultants involved. I believe it's in the Pac-12's best interest to go slow, let the Big Ten set the market, and then give some other bidders a chance to weigh in. Don't just let ESPN bid against itself. Bob Thompson, the former Fox Sports Network's president, told me that he thinks the conference would be wise and want to see who's on the outside looking in after the Big Ten option ends. He said, quote, there's going to be some folks who expressed an interest in collegiate football who aren't going to get it in the Big Ten deal, end quote. Meanwhile, the athletic directors of the Pac-12's 10 remaining universities are still talking to each other. The, the ADs I'm talking with tell me they're upbeat. They feel like they are galvanized. And they come to this conversation with a variety of competing interests. Some of them are haves. Some of them are have-nots. Some of them have advantageous geography and large TV markets. Others do not. But the AD that I quoted in the piece today said that there is a singular threat to the Pac-12. It's the Big Ten and the Big Ten only. That is it. The Big 12 threat is, quote, laughable, unquote. Now, would the Big Ten decide to further expand and add Oregon and Washington? That's the question that Duck fans and Husky fans want to know. Would, they, uh, would the Big Ten chase Stanford, maybe? Uh, I am going to take a dive on that in the coming days at johnconzano.com. I'm talking with analysts. I'm talking with TV, former TV network executives, including Bob Thompson. And uh, the prevailing thought that, uh, I, you know, that I have garnered in some of my conversations is that currently none of those candidates, Oregon, Washington, or Stanford, by themselves, generate enough potential media rights value to make it a no-brainer. We know that because the Big Ten didn't do it. Big Ten didn't want Oregon or Washington, didn't want Stanford, at least on the first pass. Now, there may be other passes. I think uh, we are talking about a landscape in college sports that is going to shift and shift and shift. But, you know, I floated the Oregon-Washington-Stanford question to a current Big Ten conference athletic director this morning. He waved me off. He said Stanford might be interesting to the conference presidents because of the academic piece, but without Notre Dame, you're not going to take Stanford. And so Notre Dame, uh, as we have all sort of talked about, Notre Dame is a big piece of this. And I said it yesterday. I'm going to say it again. If you're Notre Dame and you have access to the college football playoff and you can get a 75 million-dollar-a-year revenue windfall from NBC, you don't need the SEC. You don't need the Big Ten. If the access to the playoff got cut off, the that changes. But as long as Notre Dame can go 10-2 and two or 11-1 and one and get in the playoff, Notre Dame doesn't need the Big Ten. And if Notre Dame doesn't need the Big Ten and I'm the Big Ten, I'm having a hard time justifying taking Oregon, taking Washington, or taking Stanford, or taking any combination of them, because their media rights valuations, the potential media rights they bring, just doesn't pencil out. And you're not going to subsidize the Oregon Ducks if you're the Big Ten. You're not going to subsidize Washington. You're not going to subsidize Stanford. So I think right now we're going to see things quiet down a little bit, despite what Kevin Warren said, despite what the Big 12 
conference commissioner is saying, despite all the hand-wringing in Arizona and Colorado and Utah and across the big 12-foot print, I don't think any of the Pac-12 schools are going to jump to the Big 12. I don't think it makes sense. I don't think that pencils out either. I I think if the Pac-12 does expand, it's going to start with San, San Diego State and somebody else. It has to be a twosome at this point. But I'm having a hard time right now thinking that the Pac-12 has to add somebody in order to survive. Again, it's going to come down to the same calculus that the Big Ten and the SEC are doing. Can you justify enough money to take them, take those parties? Leave it here. Our big splash coming up. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Our big splash. We do it every day on the show. Today, no different. The one thing you absolutely need to know today. Look, look, look at it. Where? Down there. Must be the Big Splash. Well, Vin Scully, legendary Dodgers broadcaster, passed away yesterday, age of 94. Iconic. His uh, voice was the soundtrack of summer. He entertained and he informed. Those are the jobs when you're a broadcaster. Scully died at his home in the Hidden Hills section of Los Angeles, according to the Dodgers. Uh, no cause of death was provided. Rob Manfred, Major League Baseball commissioner, issued a statement. Um, and uh, he was the longest tenured broadcaster with a single team in pro sports history. He saw it all. He called it all. Vin Scully, dead at the age of 94. Man, Vin Scully. Um... Steven, I thought about Bill Shonley. I, I'm not gonna lie. Yeah, he's he's in his 90s. We got to get him on the show. We got to get him back on the show. Just I, you know, who knows? We all none of us knows how much time we have left, but we got to get the mayor back on the show. Yeah, I mean, Vin Scully is to L.A. and a lot of the nations with Bill Shonley is to Portland. And you know, you got to cherish those things. You want to hear the stories. You want to hear the calls because they're all memorable and they're all good. You know, so I agree with you. Let's get him back on. It's just you know. Bill Russell over the weekend, and then Vin Scully. You know, I I kept thinking to myself, like, you know, like of course no, these guys aren't going to live forever, but still, it it uh, it's a loss to all of us, not just the Dodgers family, when you have great personalities in sports who pass away. Matt Prem, twenty four seven Sports, next. B F F T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the Bald Face Truth. Oregon had its local media day in Eugene today. Dan Lanning, Bo Nix, all of the Oregon Ducks talking. Who's going to start at quarterback in the opener? I think it's Bo Nix. I think we all think it's Bo Nix. Why won't Oregon say that? Well, Oregon's playing the game that everybody else is playing, I think. Matt Preem, 24-7 sports. He's all over the Ducks. We're going to talk some college basketball as the Ducks have had some encouraging developments on the recruiting front in basketball. But we'll talk some college football as well with Matt Preem. And he's back and he's here. How you doing, man? I'm doing good, John. Uh, I guess football season for you and I is officially here because Oregon had its 
annual media day at Austin. 32 football players spoke. Dan Lanning spoke. And uh, this may be a little bit of sucking up to the SIDs at Oregon, but new new format for media day, and I think it was a huge success. Learned a lot more. Players were engaged more because they weren't sitting around for an hour. Uh, it was good event. Give me an idea when you – Go to, like, Pac-12 Media Day, and then you go to the Oregon Ducks Media Day. How different those two events are? Because a lot of fans and readers, listeners, never get to go. Oh, yeah, it's totally different. Um, the environments are different. Pac-12 Media Day, it's it's hard for someone like you and I who covers the team uh, on a day-to-day basis to really get the questions in during the media scrum availability that you're wanting to ask because there's going to be a lot of people that aren't really familiar with the team. And so they're asking like NIL questions. They're asking goofy questions. They're asking realignment questions, things that sometimes often players don't have anything to do with. They're just getting these quotes. And I understand that they're, this is a hot topic. They have to be discussed. Um, And so at Pac-12 Media Day, I I get the most information when I get a player one-on-one off to the side at lunch or when they're transitioning from radio row down to uh, press row. Um, And then at at Oregon Media Day, that that is like a Trevor Trove of information for someone like myself because the way it was set up today, uh, four players spoke for 15 minutes and then another group of four players would rotate in, and they did that for two and a half hours and, I mean, I, I, I was at one station for almost the entire time. I, I got 15 minutes with Bo Nix, Noah Sewell, Justin Flo, Jeffrey Bassa, Brandon Dorless. Uh, the list goes on. And you learn so much about these guys. You get good information. And then Dan Lanning uh, is very much uh, in tune of, of football mode. He's not being asked a lot of questions about realignment, about NIL, uh, it, about recruiting, about TV deals. Uh, he's talking strictly ball for the most part at Oregon Media Day, so we learn more there too as well. Matt Prem, twenty four seven Sports, with us. Uh, Bo Nix, he talked today. He looked good in the spring game. He looked like he's the starter, but uh, I think Oregon is going to play this very carefully because it's a game you got to play right now. Um, what are they looking for from Bo Nix in fall camp right now? You know, Landing was asked, like, ultimately, what's going to decide. Uh, who wins this job? What are the traits that you are looking for? And the first thing he said was an understanding of the system that they want to run. Um, and then it's the second one is, can you get the ball to an open receiver? And then the guy that also doesn't turn the football over. And so I think one it's you have to have total command of the offense. Landing says all three guys have that. Number two and number three are, are ones that will have to be played out during the football se- uh, during fall camp. Is all right. Who, who's the guy that gives us the best chance to keep the football and move it down the field later on in, 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 in the media day? Lanning talked about how the quarterbacks have to have the confidence, have to have the trust factor with the receivers to push the football down the field through the air, uh, take deep shots, and the ones that can that one that can can do that successfully on a consistent basis will be in a good position to play right away because you have to be able, you have to take shots and you have to be able to loosen up that defense. And Bo Nix, I asked him about that, and he he said that not only is it important for him to be able to connect downfield with his receivers, but if he can do that, 
that actually makes the run game even more successful and helps the run game because it'll make the defense so concerned about getting beat over the top. So I, I think ultimately what Oregon's asking Bo Nix to do is separate yourself by showing the command of the offense. A lot of people credited him already for his leadership there. And then number two and three, don't turn the football over and create some explosive plays. Matt Prem, 24-7 Sports with us. Give me a guy that you know you got to talk to today that – that you learned a lot about that maybe surprised you. Uh, you know, you've been around this team a lot, but every year is a new year, and you see real growth and maturity, I think, every year in these guys. Um, can I go back to Pac-12 Media Day and give yeah. that answer instead? Yeah, yeah. Because it's, it's DJ Johnson. Um, this is a dude that has played tight end for three years out of Oregon. He's moving to defensive end full-time for the first time. Uh, and I got about – 15 minutes of just him and me talking. And this is a guy that's married. He's trying to buy a house so that he can re- reinvest that house into generating income, I, I believe, through rental. Uh, he's into stocks. He's he's into figuring out ways to use his NIL. He has a lot of NIL deals, uh, but he's using those deals to fund other passive-aggressive income for himself. Uh, he breeds dogs. He's, I, I think I said he's married. He's just not your typical guy that you think of when it's college athletics uh, and especially a college football player. And he's someone that, quite frankly, the first few years out of Oregon, I didn't really want to talk to him because every time we did, it was, it, it was difficult to get stuff out of him. Um, I don't know why. Uh, and then on top of that, his availability was extremely limited for whatever reason. This season, I already can tell he's going to be one of Oregon's better interviews this season. Uh, I don't call it maybe it's maturation, a guy playing his, his final year of college football. Uh, it, it, he's just got a cool story. He had over 100 scholarship offers, John, coming out of high school. I don't think I can I've – call, I've followed recruiting for a long time. I've covered it for a long time. I can't tell you another recruit that had over 100 scholarship offers in high school. Yeah, he he told me he was starting this side hustle breeding dogs, and uh, you know his eyes lit up like that. That consumed like half of our interview. Him talking about you know what goes into being a breeder of dogs and why he got into it, and uh, yep. really good kid, uh, Matt. Let me ask you, you know, the questions for Oregon in fall camp: Are they on the offensive side or the defensive side in your mind? I think a lot of it's just going to naturally gravitate to what does Kenny Dillingham, the offensive coordinator, what does his offense look like? Is it successful? What can the offense do when they get pushback? When what the adjustment to the adjustment? Um, I, I think Mario Cristobal's tenure at Oregon. Sometimes they were really good coming out of the jump, and then when the opponent made an adjustment, it took Oregon a while offensively to, to adjust to the adjustment. And you know, that was what I think separated Chip Kelly from everybody when he was that head coach at Oregon. I feel like the first couple of seasons at Oregon for Mark Helfrich, it was similar. And even Willie Taggart's offenses were pretty prolific. Uh, they were able to put up some big points when Herbert was healthy. Um, that's one. That's going to be one of my questions at, at, on the offensive side of the ball, and it's I, I've got more concerns, or I don't know if they're concerns, but questions on offense than I do defense. The, the, the defense has an All-American in, in Noah Sewell. They have another potential 
NFL-caliber player in Justin Flo if he can stay healthy. Brandon Dorlitz will be an NFL guy. I think they have other NFL players in the secondary. Christian Gonzalez could be one if he has a really big year. He could be a one-and-done transfer for Oregon as a cornerback. I think Jamal Hill, Bennett Williams are really good safeties. They've got talent there. I don't know if Oregon has an All-American on the offensive side of the football. They could maybe have a guy that's got the ceiling to get there, but is that a realistic expectation to – to call on, I don't know. And so how can this team, without a potential All-American on it, execute at a high level, collectively play really well as a group? Because that's, that's how they're going to be elite. It's, they're going to play really good as a unit. There's not going to be one or two guys that just carry all the water for this offense. Uh, and, then the, and then the offensive coordinator, Kenny Dillingham, you know, he's done it a couple years at a couple other schools, but – you know, it's it's still his his first time play you know as a play caller. That that's got some questions to me. Matt Prem, twenty four seven Sports, is with us. The running back position, you got Travis Dye over at USC. How do they replace his production? Yeah, that's that's an interesting one. Um, they've got options, that's for sure. It's been a long time since Oregon has had eleven scholarship or walk on running backs on roster. That's a lot of guys. Um, when Travis Dye transferred to USC, that left Oregon with two players, Sean Dollars and Byron Cardwell. Dollars coming off a major injury. Uh, it, Dollars was limited in, in, in snaps that he played as a true freshman in 2021, although he did lead the conference in yards per carry and ran for 415 yards. So he had limited numbers but really good production. And since then, uh, Marquise Irving from Minnesota, uh, he was a freshman last season, ran for over 700 yards. Noah Whittington was a freshman for Western Kentucky, and they were one of the better offenses in the country last year. He played significantly for them. Jordan James feels like this is a guy from Atlanta, Georgia, that's going to be a true freshman. He, Dan Lanning flipped him from Georgia. Um, this is going to be another guy that could push his way into the mix. I think it's going to – how they make up for Travis Dye is doing it collectively. Um, they've got five running backs on on scholarship, and it wouldn't surprise me if all five of them play. Uh, and they because they're all different types. You've got your all-purpose guy. You've got your traditional running back. You've got your bigger back. Uh, they've got all types of backs on this roster, and I think collectively it's going to be one of those deals where maybe they don't have one guy that is a 1,200-yard rusher and 1,800 all-purpose yards and 20 total touchdowns. But collectively, as a unit, they can exceed those numbers. Matt Prem with us, 24-7 Sports. I want to shift to basketball. Uh, Oregon sure. basketball gets uh, a pretty good week for them. Tell me about Kwame Evans. Tell me what's going on with Dana Altman's program. Yeah. Uh, there was a year ago when, when assistant coach Tony Stubblefield left the program to become head coach at DePaul, the question I got from a lot of people was, oh, boy, that was that was Altman's big recruiter at Oregon. Is there going to be a dip? Uh, Altman went out and hired Chris Crutchfield. Um, he replaced Stubblefield, and all Oregon did was sign one of its best recruits in program history in Khalil Ware, who's on campus today. And when Crutchfield got the head coaching job at Omaha of Nebraska, the same question popped up again. Oh, boy, what's going to happen? Oregon's in trouble here because – Crutchfield served as a recruiter for Mookie Cook, who was a five-star that he committed. He served as a recruiter for Kwame Evans. And Oregon lost Mookie Cook's uh, commitment. He opened things back up. And then Kwame Evans all of a sudden started trending to the Arizona Wildcats. 
And Alma needed some time. He needed to, you know, just adjust, hire a new coach, Chuck Martin, and the program landed Kwame Evans. He's the number two rated player in program history to commit to Oregon. Five-star player. The only guy rated higher than him is Bull Bull. And I know Bull Bull didn't play a lot at Oregon, but go pop in his stats in his seven games. He was averaging like 20 and 12, was on pace to have a freshman All-American season. Am I going to say that's what Kwame Evans is going to do as a freshman? I don't know. I don't, I don't think so. But this is a guy that NBA scouts like. This is a guy that a lot of schools across the country wanted. And in a short period of time after readjusting, figuring things out after Crutchfield's departure, Altman made a hire. They got back involved with Kwame Evans and ultimately spun him back to Oregon, got his commitment. And this now puts Oregon right back in a prime position to get the commitment a second time from Mookie Cook. That's where things are trending. Cook and Evans are close friends. They want to play high school. They want to play college ball together. Uh, he's Cook is friends with West Lynn's Jackson Shellstead. He's a top 100 prospect committed to Oregon in the same class. Um, I think Altman has put to bed that he any kind of concerns about him and, and the program's recruiting. There shouldn't be any more. Uh, they, they are on track to potentially sign the best class in program history, which was that 2018 class with two five-stars in Lewis King and Bull Bull. And what makes this one unique is, John, if they can get Mookie Cook back into the fold, that gives Oregon two top ten players in the class of 2023. That's never happened before at Oregon. Give me an idea. You know, Altman's 64. It kind of feels like he's got this window – uh, he doesn't play like he's 64 or coach like he's 64. I think I think he's probably got three or four more seasons before we really start to ask, like, hey, how much do you want to do this? Do you have a sense with Dana Altman how much more he's got in the tank? Yeah, he asked, he was asked that question at Pac-12 Media Day uh, ahead of last season, and he kind of was just like, what else am I going to do? You know, I, I, I love coaching. I My family lives in Eugene. And, you know, his wife, Reba, would kick him out, he said, if he stayed at home too long. He'd just get a little restless. Um, and so I, I'm with you. I think he's going to be in Eugene a while. Now, what happens if they get to a Final Four run and th- in two years? It, you know, when, when Kwame Evans and then this other you know, class of freshmen are all uh, guys on the team, and do, do they get to the final four and do they get to a championship game or do they lose a, a tight one in, in the final four round? Does he pull a Jay Wright and just say, you know what, I made it back to the top of this sport almost as high as you could go. This was a good run. I'm one of the best coaches in, in the sport currently. I'm retiring. I, I would be shocked, but it, it wouldn't be out of the realm of possibility. Um, but I, don't, I, I, think, I think how last season ended – maybe has, has relit a fire in him. He's really motivated. I know he's really upset at, and frustrated at how uh, poor that year went with the expectations that that team had them there. He, and he places, he places the blame on himself all the time. He doesn't blame the players. He, he blames that he could figure out how to get that team to work. And part of me kind of thinks that might have added a couple extra years uh, to his coaching career just because he wants to get back, and 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 he gets so upset. He's so he's one of the most competitive guys I've been around. I mean, he gets so upset when they have seasons like that, and he wants to show that you know that's not who the Oregon basketball program is under his watch. Matt Prem, twenty four seven Sports. I really appreciate you joining us. I'm excited about this season. I know all the drama of the conference and everything is dominating. There's a lot of anxiety out there, but I think. 
you know, we're all looking forward to some football and, you know, the escape that it's supposed to be. That That's what's bothered me in this whole thing, Matt, is like this sports are supposed to be an escape. And here we are, you know, talking about the business of sports and fretting over the dollars and the TV contracts. And so I love that we're talking, we're finally talking some football. Yeah. Yeah. It, 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 I hate how we're having to cover what TV networks get, how much money per, you know, per market and, you know, cable tiers and TV market tiers. Like that's just, that's not why I got into this. It's, it's not, I understand that, that this is big business now and that those things need to, to happen. But I, I just, it frustrates me that we're making decisions solely based off of TV markets or um, tiers of, uh, of revenue streams and not yeah. on who are the best teams. And give me the best teams, and let's figure it out. And I don't care where they come from. I, if they're all from the SEC, they're all from the SEC. But if if the best 25 teams are are spread out across the country, I want to see the best teams play each other. And unfortunately, it's starting to look like we might not see some of that, or or some schools could be left out because they're not in some big market, which just doesn't doesn't make sense to me. When when it's college athletics, uh, it, it's a weird time. Football hopefully being played will die those discussions down a little bit, but unfortunately, it's it's important news. It's important information that we have to know about and we have to learn about because if we don't, uh, you know, if, if these discussions don't happen. You know, some, some schools could get left in the dust. Matt Prem, you're the best. Thank you for joining us. Always good to hear from you. I appreciate it. Thanks, John. Thanks. There he is. I've got some burning questions for this college football season. I'll share them next. Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Burning questions for the Pac-12, for the Oregon Ducks, for Oregon State. I've got them. Before that, though, I got, I got to say something. Do you have a comfort food? Steven, Sean, do you guys have, like, a comfort food that, like, what popped into your head when I said those words? Comfort food. What is your comfort food? Well, I think I can eat uh, just pizza at any point. And it's a comfort food because it, I just keep going back. It's one of those things, like, if there's a slice of pizza out, I'm not going to decline it. <laughs> Yeah, And then I'm going to go back for another, and then another, and then another, and then, oh, there's a new flavor? Yeah, give me that one. So... I think for me, like comfort food, that that'd be pizza for me. I I eat probably two bowls of oatmeal every day, and I, I'm talking Whoa. good oatmeal. Like I'm talking, you know, real oats. real oats, not the uh, not the bags of sugar that you can buy at the store. Like real oats, mm-hmm. peanut butter, frozen fruit, protein powder. I make a delicious bowl of uh, of oatmeal, and I probably have about two bowls every day. That is healthy. You are a healthy person. You're a I'm a pretty healthy eater. Yeah, I'm you pretty are- healthy eater. You, that is a humble brag right there. The guy's eating oatmeal. That's his comfort food. I only bring it up because uh, I'm, a, I'm a pasta guy, and I grew up like Italian family. We, we had pasta more than once a week growing up. That's what we ate, grandma's sauce. Uh, we, uh, we were all taught, all the grandkids were taught how to make grandma's sauce before we went off to college, and then you know I cooked it through college, and then... I found myself like teaching Anna, who did not grow up eating pasta. She grew up eating Asian food. She grew up eating like you know real Chinese food, not the kind of Chinese food that I ate when I went to a Chinese restaurant. But like the first time I met uh, Anna's mom, in fact, uh, I came in. She was in our kitchen, 
and there was a chicken in a pot, and, and the chicken still had the head on it, and Anna's mom was in a shower cap, and I was like, she is cooking in a shower cap with a real chicken with a head, with a eyes and a face on this chicken looking at me out of the pot, and I was like, this is new, uh, and so I think my wife's comfort foods tend to be like the foods she grew up eating with her mom, and I agree with Stephen, like if there's pizza around, I'm all about it, but... It's grandma's pasta and the pasta sauce. And I got to tell you, like, Anna made the sauce yesterday while I was on air during the show. And she came in during a commercial break. My mouth's literally watering right now as I talk about this. Uh, she came into the commercial break, and she said, um, hey, what do I do once the sauce is kind of cooked? I can't just leave it kind of simmering all day, can I? And I said, you can. But you're going to need to add some water to it. Otherwise, yeah, it would just dry out, and you end up with paste at the bottom of the pot. So you got to, you know, either you could, if you've cooked it for a couple hours, you can kind of back it off and just let it, let it, uh, you know, sit with the pot, you know, with the lid on the pot, or you can add some water to it. And I, after the show yesterday, I was so excited to have the pasta because I could smell it, and I could smell that it was cooked right. And by right, I mean it was cooked like my grandmother would cook it. And I got to say, I told her this yesterday that um, I she nailed it. Like, she nailed it. It was, I, I think we've been married like 12 years, and yesterday was the best sauce she's ever made. And all my Italian friends are going to blow up my phone now going, how come you didn't invite me over, all this other stuff. But she nailed it, home run. And it was so good that I don't know if you guys have ever done this. I ate and I was full, but I just kept eating for a while. Because it tasted so good, I was kind of eating for the taste for a while after. And I kept saying to her, this is so good. You, like, home run. Nailed it. And the best part is she made so much that I could eat it for, like, days. So, uh, And I'll have it for breakfast. I don't even care. Uh, anything about that relate to you, Stephen, Sean? Like, do you have a family recipe that you learned or some kind of recipe you're going to teach your kids? Uh, I don't necessarily have a recipe per se. Um my dad kind of makes a buffalo wing sauce that is really delightful that we he's kind of passed on to me and my wife so we do that uh, but it. it just you that story reminded me of uh, this past weekend my buddy it was his birthday and so we just had street tacos and we made steak and shrimp and chicken um, and we had you know nacho cheese we had pico de gallo we had all the all the makings and I wasn't hungry and I just kept going back and like picking up a piece of steak and eating it or picking up a piece of chicken and eating it. Now, you know what? I'm going to throw in these homemade tortillas that I, that I uh, oiled up, you know, and it was just delightful. And so, yeah, I, I know exactly what you're saying. When you smell those type of smells, you're, you know, you're going to go back for more and you're not even hungry. Yeah. Not a specific recipe, but I know that I'm going to pass down the, uh, you know, the pancake Sunday or, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to inherit the pancake Sunday. I've talked about it on the show before. Whoa, whoa, wait, wait, wait. Tell us about the pancake Sunday. For yeah. Me. I talked about this maybe a couple weeks ago on this show, but every, every Sunday morning it's pancakes. And my dad used to make us pancakes, um, before we even woke up, like you, you'd pop out of bed and you'd, you'd smell the, uh, you'd smell chocolate chip pancakes yeah. every Sunday. And you, that's would, a good memory. Yeah, it's uh, and you have those right before you dive into some NFL football. I always loved Sundays growing up. Love that. See, that's and I think part of that, Sean. Correct me if I'm wrong, but part of it is just the connection of family and your dad, and the fact that like as a kid you wake up and dad's got you covered. Yeah, no, and we totally embraced it. You know, uh, we ended up like 
Christmas or birthday, like we'd buy him a new griddle or a new spatula, or we bought him like a uh, a Miami Dolphins apron, his favorite team, um, which is un- it's an unfortunate team to have right now. But uh, yeah, like it was just a it was a great family experience. Like I feel like those when then the family's busy throughout the week and everyone's doing their own thing. Like you know, it's it's super important to have those you know Sunday maybe it's Sunday for most people like kind of get-togethers. It's a nice uh, Merry Christmas to your dad. Hey, Merry Christmas, Dad. Now go make me some pancakes. <laughs> Invite him over. Could your dad come over, spend the night, and make us all pancakes? <laughs> Is that how we do it? Yeah. I love he, it. Yeah, he's in Arizona now, so. A station a station pancake party? Yeah, we do pancake. We could, we could have, like, a pancake fundraiser, and Sean's dad cooks pancakes for, like, you know, 20,000 listeners. Let's I know, do Peter, it. Peter's down with some ribs. I mean, he'll cook up some ribs and bring them in. I'm just telling you, though, there's something about a good pasta sauce. It's got to have meat in it. It's got to be a red sauce, not, not nothing else. You know, my, my parents will make pesto, whatever. It's fine. But grandma's red sauce with the sausage in it, a little spicy, spicy Italian sausage in it. Oh, man, that's where it's at. All right, I do have burning questions. I'll share them coming up. One of my burning questions is, why is Ty Thompson still at Oregon? I'll answer that, what I think the answer is, next. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I got burning questions uh, for the University of Oregon football program. I'm also hungry now. Peter Sampson, what's your comfort food? John, without a doubt, my comfort food, it's right along the lines of yours. I am into a pasta, a good red sauce, three meats. You got to have some Italian sausage. You can go spicy or none. You got to have some short ribs, and then you got to have a little pepperoni in there. Oh, man. I like that. I, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to definitely have uh, more of that Anna pasta that, uh, <laughs> that she made yesterday. Uh, I want to get to burning questions. Among them... Why does or why is Ty Thompson still at Oregon? It it is a question that I think will be answered by this off season and this fall camp. And I think he is going to eventually not end up at Oregon. And I think it's going to be sad because I think you know, I think one of the big tragedies in the Oregon program is that you know, you look back at Justin Herbert and Marcus Mariota, and maybe I'm a little old-fashioned here, but I would have expected that Oregon would have recruited and developed some quarterbacks in the interim. And instead, we saw a handful of transfer quarterbacks come in, and it, it kind of Lincoln Riley said this on Pac-12 Media Day. He believes that this is just kind of be, going to be the game at that position, that it is at a different position than others that the quarterback position is going to end up being more likely to be a transfer. It's kind of the game they're going to play. And Herm Edwards kind of doubled down on that, saying, look, um, you don't have a number two quarterback anymore because the number two transfers out, jumps in the portal, and probably gets NIL money uh, to go somewhere else. And so you've got a real issue with depth at the quarterback position, but if you're Oregon, you're feeling pretty good in this fall camp as you have Bo Nix, the transfer from Auburn, who has got some SEC starts under his belt. You've got Ty Thompson, 
who we've all heard so much about and all the stars attached to his name and liked some of what I saw in the spring game. Didn't love everything, but you can see what Oregon sees in him. And you got Jay Butterfield, who is smooth and probably played the second best football in the spring game. A lot of people watching that game, a lot of people that I trust watching that game, including Nick Aliotti, the former Oregon D coordinator and Pac-12 network analyst who was there. We brought him on this show after, and I said, okay, rank him. And he said, Bo Nix, Jay Butterfield, Ty Thompson. He ranked him one, two, three that way. So the question is, why is Ty Thompson still at Oregon? And I think the answer came today partly because Dan Lanning, the coach at Oregon, has been really smart and really shrewd about how he talks about who's the starter. And I think he hasn't closed the door yet. And it's a game that is played at a lot of colleges across the country. Head coach is very reluctant. I, I talked about it yesterday a little bit. Head coach being a little bit reluctant to name a starter early because they know the minute they name a starter, the number two is going to go, I'm out of here. I can go play somewhere else. And they're going to transfer, and they're going to transfer to Nevada, and they're going to transfer to San Diego State, and they're going to transfer to Fresno State, and they're out. And so – you know, we've seen this. We've seen it at Oregon. We've seen it at Oregon State. Okay? And you've seen it across the Pac-12. It happens. So, but if we're being real, there's either a blind spot that, that I have when it comes to Ty Thompson, or he's being told something behind the scenes that is holding him there. I'm going to be really surprised if he starts many games this season. I kind of feel like the more likely scenario is that Bo Nix is the starter in week one and that Oregon goes all in to get convince Jay Butterfield to stick around as the backup. But I just don't, I don't understand what is happening right now with Ty Thompson. And I said this yesterday. I asked Oregon, hey, can I get Bo Nix on the show? And they said, fine, yeah, you can get Bo Nix on the show, but if you're going to get Bo Nix on, you have to take – all three quarterbacks, not not all five or eight quarterbacks, but the big three, meaning you have to take Bo Nix and Ty Thompson and Jay Butterfield all on the show. And I was like, okay. And I thought that was kind of strange. But then I talked to Alex Forsythe, the offensive lineman at Oregon, and I said, you know, tell me about Bo Nix. And he said, Bo Nix is great, and he's a good leader and all this stuff. And then and, and Ty Thompson is great, and then Jay Butterfield's great. And then I said, I went back to Alex, and I said, yeah, but Bo Nix, right? And he said, all three guys are great. And I, and I surmised in that moment that not only had head coach Dan Lanning decided, hey, we're not going to single out one quarterback until we have to single out one quarterback, but that that message got down to his players. And it was evident on media day today as they let all those guys talk that, that you know Oregon is really going to push the narrative that this is a wide-open quarterback battle. And yet, I think we all know that Bo Nix will start the opener if he's healthy against Georgia. And, and granted, I don't blame – I'm not saying I blame Dan Lanning, okay? I don't blame Dan Lanning for playing it this way because I'm not sure I would play it any different. But I think it's interesting – to kind of look at, you know, Jay Butterfield, Ty Thompson, Bo Nix. Why is Ty Thompson still there? Let's kick it around. Peter, Sean, why is Ty Thompson still at Oregon right now? 
Well, first of all, quite frankly, I don't think he was that good of a quarterback during his freshman year. I feel like Mario Cristobal was not a good quarterback developer. We saw that with Justin Herbert. We saw that, the fact that Anthony Brown started a full season. And I just, you know, Alex Forsyth really talked about how much Ty Thompson's improved, like just his great improvement. So that kind of that kind of reminded me that Ty Thompson last year was not a good quarterback and probably wouldn't have started at any other Pac-12 school. As it comes to this year, I feel like it's still pretty open. I mean, sure, we we except that Bo Nix is going to be the starter for Georgia because he's played in the SEC before. But I do think that Bo Nix is going to have a pretty short leash and a pretty low margin for error. I, I think the second that he maybe makes a bad interception, there's there's going to be rumblings about Ty Thompson. So Oregon's a huge brand. You know, he came to play at Oregon. It's, it's one of the biggest, you know, brands in college football. And I think he'd rather compete for the job at Oregon and maybe not have it be a guarantee than go be the sure thing at Nevada. I, yeah. Could be. Peter, go ahead. Yeah, I, I think maybe. I mean, you hit it right on the head. He wasn't that good last year. Everyone was calling for him when Brown was struggling, and all the reports were that the kid's just not ready. I mean, look, if you're not that ready and at least not right now that good, you don't have a ton of options to necessarily play elsewhere. And I think Dan Lanning's played this really well. I, the way I'm kind of reading it is maybe Ty Thompson knows, look, it's not this year. It's going to be next year. Oregon, the NIL money is going to be there. Bo Nix is the guy right now. If he gets hurt, you never know what's going to happen. But beyond this year, we got a killer recruiting class yep. coming in. Dante Moore's you, coming in. That, yeah, that's the know. challenge. But I think that Ty Thompson might get an opportunity to maybe win that job early there. If yeah, if because if you are Oregon, you got Bo Nix right now, and you brought Bo Nix in, and so I'm just trying to put myself in Ty Thompson's shoes. Like I feel like. He should have got on the field last year at some point, and he should have got on the field in a meaningful way. Uh, but Mario Cristobal wasn't ready to go there, and you know isn't ready to take a shot with a young QB at that position. So he didn't put him out there. Okay, that's fine. Now you come in to this year. You got a new coach. New coach brings Bo Nix with him, and oh by the way, Dante Moore, the four-star quarterback, the number eight overall player in the class of 2023, commits to Oregon. So if you're Ty Thompson. You are caught in this. You're pinched in this this scenario now, where it's Bo Nix. For now, you got to beat him out, and then if not, Dante Moore's coming right after him. So this kid, you know, I, I keep thinking about Ty Thompson. I keep thinking if it doesn't happen for him in fall camp, and if he starts this season going, hey, I'm number two on the depth chart, or maybe even number three on the depth chart, at some point he's got to pull the ripcord and go, hey, I, I'm out of here. Got to do what I got to do. But I just find it really interesting. And I know this, you know, Nate Costa is the quarterback coach at Nevada. He knows these QBs. I will not be surprised if Jay Butterfield or Ty Thompson jumps in the portal and ends up somewhere like Nevada, okay? And if that happens, that's fine. Like, I'm always, like, primarily I'm focused on covering these teams, Oregon, Oregon State, the Pac-12 teams, and whatnot. But beyond that, I also, I there's part of me that sort of sees the world through the eyes of the players and if I'm Ty Thompson and it's not going to happen for me at Oregon at any point this season, it's not going to happen. Like, this is his time. Like, he should be emerging right now. And maybe maybe he goes into fall camp and he just plays lights out, and it, and it is a tough decision for Dan Lanning. And maybe that's what they're selling the kid on. But I kind of feel like, does anybody believe that Bo Nix is not going to start the opener? He's going to start the opener, but... Yeah. 
after that, I mean, we've seen, look at Utah last year. Like I don't remember the kid's name, but they started someone not named Cam Rising last year to start the year. And then by week three or four, it was Cam Rising. So I think, you know, it's a long season. I think Bo Nix is the right guy for Georgia, but that doesn't mean that he's the guy for the rest of the season. So I still think it's, it's pretty open. Bo yeah. Nix has looked good, like in everything that I've seen, but I think the other two guys are really good too. So I, I still think it's it's open, and that's why Thompson's there. I, I I don't think it's open. I think Nix is the starter. I, I'd love to be wrong. The guy you're talking about, it's a great comparison. The guy you're talking about was Charlie Brewer. He was brought in from Baylor to be Utah's starter at quarterback. And he started the year there. But Andy Ludwig and Kyle Whittingham pretty quickly turned to Cam Rising and said, this kids he's a winner. He's a hacker. He, you know, he's not the biggest kid. He doesn't have the strongest arm. But Cam Rising's a gamer, and he's a leader. And they, you know, they decided, hey, we're going to ride with that. Um, I'm curious to see what Bo Nix has leadership-wise. I'm curious to see that because I think that's the X factor. The spring game for me felt like there was a lot of pressure on Ty Thompson. Like he, this is his first chance. He's going, everybody's going to see him. Like, so I'm going to give him a little bit of a mulligan there because I thought he made some strange decisions in the game that made me kind of go, oh, that's why they didn't play him last year. He forces things and. He doesn't, you know, he, he tries to make some plays that aren't there. And, and Mario Cristobal, you, we all know, super conservative, was not going to be having that. So maybe in this fall camp he settles down. Maybe he makes it a race. But I keep hearing about Butterfield, too. And the people in the program are talking like, hey, you know, Butterfield might be the best quarter, best of the three. So I think it's a good situation for Dan Lanning to be in. And I agree with you guys that Lanning is handling it right. I'm just at some point, if Ty Thompson doesn't play, at some point, he's got to get in the portal and get somewhere where he can play. He's too good. His resume too good. Look at his bio on online. Like the kid is just he is. He came in with all of the accolades, all of the uh, potential in the world, and it, we got to see it here. It, because if we don't see it, it's Bo Nix is going to hand the baton to Dante Moore, and and we're going to go like, gosh, Ty Thompson never mattered. I want you to leave it here. You got the bald face truth. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Five o'clock hour, we're going to talk about broadcasting. Ben Scully passed away yesterday. I think we all knew uh, Scully wouldn't live forever, but man. Just like Bill Russell, legend gone and uh, legendary broadcaster, legendary player over the weekend, and Bill Russell, uh, both those guys gone. Uh, I want to talk about the Trailblazers just for a moment here. I mentioned this last week. I keep coming back to, like, everybody else's free agent summer or draft. Some of the teams get to pick in the top two or three picks in the draft. They get excited about seeing young players. And Peter, um, tell me if this is a give-up. Or if it's a good point. Because there's part of me that wants to call myself out on this. But I feel like the biggest acquisition the Blazers could make, realistic acquisition, is getting a healthy Damian Lillard on the roster. And I said that, I think, last week. And I believe it. But have I lowered my... I, you know, I, I came to this market and I said, don't lower your standards. Don't lower the bar. 
hold everybody. You know, everybody's got to get, you know, come on up. Oregon State, you can't, we're not lowering the bar just so you make bowl eligibility. eligibility. Oregon, we're not going to say, you know, just getting to a Holiday Bowl or an Alamo Bowl is enough. And Blazers just making the playoffs, it's not enough. And yet here I find myself going, look, the best thing that could happen for the Blazers this summer is probably Damian Lillard really being healthy, not just being a shadow of himself. Yeah, I mean, you are kind of lowering the bar, but also you're right. I mean, I think people have forgotten that Damian Lillard, you know, he's a legit first-team All-NBA point guard when he's healthy, second-team depending on what Steph's doing. But that being said, I mean, it's it's no secret. The Blazers need to add more talent. We looked at the roster last year and said, man, even if they have health and Dame and Nurk and Anthony Simons, all these guys are playing, they not only need talent up and down the roster, they do need a secondary star. Now, Anthony Simons might be that guy. And I do think that Joe Cronin, I mean, I've been impressed with Joe Cronin so far. He's taken some lumps kind of in the middle of the rebuild, which is natural from a fan base. But I think he is going big game hunting. Now, does that mean, you know, eight, nine times out of ten you come up empty? Yeah, but come December when those contracts are eligible to be traded again, someone always shakes loose in the NBA. And look, if Portland's not legitimately in the mix, not the Neil Olshay style where you wait until a star's been dealt and then you go, oh, they just didn't like our offer. We didn't want to risk it. And you knew that they weren't even a player. Look, if they can't land a star, it's fine, but I at least want them to be a player. I want them in the mix, John. Yeah, and I feel like maybe I've been here too long. It's a rite of passage every summer. We watch these other teams sign a bunch of players, and then the Blazers tell us, well, we didn't have the cap room. We didn't have the flexibility. Okay, that's fine. But I, I'm looking at their roster from last year to this year, and I look at, like, they didn't get anything out of Damian Lillard last season. And I'm going, look, if, all right, if that's the addition, if, if the Blazer, if Blazer fans want like an all-star player on the roster, they you know add an all-star player to the roster. They're going to get one if he's healthy. Now we keep hearing that he is healthy. We keep hearing that the surgery went well. Uh, you know, and they bring up other examples of other players that have had it. I still need to see it. I need to see the guy play, and I need to know he's right. Yeah, I mean, that's fair. I, I firmly believe that he's going to come out gangbusters. I think a lot of people forgot what Damian Lillard brings. And look, we can knock Damian Lillard legitimately for certain aspects of his game or maybe always having to have the chip on his shoulder to get motivated. But there's no denying he has that chip. And he'll invent reasons if he has to to get fired up. And the quote, oh, everyone doubted me, that we see all players use all the time. He's going to use that this year. And I mean, I guess I need to see it. But but there's not a lot I'm confident about in Blazerland, including this upcoming season, but I'm confident Damian Lillard's going to be great. I'm hoping for that. Uh, we'll come uh, at the top of the hour with the 5 at 5, and I will talk uh, a little bit more about the broadcast world. I want you to start thinking about your broadcaster. Or, you know, if you're a Dodger fan, it's Scully. If you're a San Francisco Giants fan back in the day, could be Lon Simmons, could be uh, Hank Greenwald, could be Mike Kruko and Dwayne Kuyper now. If you're a uh, Seattle Mariners fan, it's Dave, Dave Nehas. If you are a um, if you are a fan of the St. Louis Cardinals, it's you know you, you're looking at one of the Bucks. And if you are a Braves fan, uh, as Peter Sampson is, who's your broadcaster? Oh, it's Skip Carey, baby. It's Skip Carey. Uh, and so I want to talk about broadcasters and why they're important in the 5 o'clock hour. I also 
if I can for a moment lament kind of, you know, I, I, I realize I'm on radio here. I'm on terrestrial radio. Maybe you're listening on the podcast. And I'm talking about how radio has changed in sports. I do think that it was really interesting when MLS decided to go with Apple in this mega deal that is going to make their games more widely available, that there was some blowback and people were upset that local radio broadcasts were going to be lost. And then MLS and Apple announced, no, 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 you're going to have an option to enable the local radio feed and listen to it. And I talked to Gary Stevenson, who is the uh, president of business for MLS, and he was like, you know, we fixed that. We got that undercover. You know, we got that all, all under wraps, and you'll be able to hear your radio broadcaster. So, I, But I still think that they aren't making radio broadcasters the way they used to. And, and I say that knowing that you've changed, and I've changed the way we consume games. We're watching more games live on TV. We're getting the reaction on Monday morning on radio, Monday afternoon on radio, whatever. And I think um, there's some of that at play here when I say this. But I'm wondering about the nostalgia of the local broadcaster, dating back to Bill Shonley in this market and Brian Wheeler, voices of the Blazers, and Mike Parker and Jerry Allen. But I want you to weigh in as well. You can start lining up right now at 503-417-7575. Tell me who your broadcaster is. Tell me, do you have a favorite play-by-play call of all time that your broadcaster has given you? I'll play some of the best coming up in the 5 o'clock hour. We'll talk about Vin Scully and more. B-F-F-T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald-faced truth. A lot of news to focus on. We'll get you caught up. Plus, we'll talk about great broadcasters. Vin Scully passed away yesterday. Great opportunity to tell me about the broadcaster you love. Who's your guy? Who's your broadcaster? 503-417-7575 is the number. So much to talk about. The NFL, not Deshaun Watson, appealing his six-game suspension. We have a wide receiver in the NFL that's been charged with a crime. And the crime? Going too fast. Plus, there's some speculation that the college football calendar could be flipped on its head and that bowl games could be played at the beginning of the season. Not the end. Is it absurdity or genius? We'll talk about it all this hour. But we'll start with the five at five. The five at five. Well, we got a lawsuit in golf. Phil Mickelson among ten golfers who were suspended by the PGA Tour after they joined the LIV Golf Tour. They have filed a lawsuit against the PGA Tour today. In addition... Mickelson and some others are seeking a temporary restraining order that would allow them to compete in upcoming events. The lawsuit was filed in Northern California. And the punishment for these guys not being allowed to be on the tour is what's in question. Jay Monahan, the commissioner of the PGA Tour, wrote a memo to players today in which he said that The tour would continue to defend members who abide by regulations written for and by the players. They're trying to protect their membership. They're trying to avoid a disruption to their tour 
and they're trying to protect their sponsors, really. It's going to be interesting to see this play out in a court of law. Antitrust at the center of it. Second thing in our 5 at 5, NFL is appealing the six-game suspension for Cleveland Browns quarterback Deshaun Watson. They would like a tougher penalty. Sue Robinson ruled on Monday that Watson deserves six games. The league notified the Players Association that it would appeal. It filed a brief today on that front. NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell will determine who gets to hear the appeal. Under the CBA, Goodell has the option to consider the appeal himself, or he can appoint a uh, designated uh, party to do so. The league is appealing for an indefinite suspension that would be a minimum of one year, a monetary fine, and some treatment that Deshaun Watson would undergo. The union also had the right to appeal Robinson's ruling, but issued a statement saying it would stand by her decision and would not appeal. The Players Association now has about 72 hours to file a written response to the NFL's appeal. They have until Friday to do this. They will do that. But it's going to be interesting to see what Roger Goodell does. Does he want to hear this himself? Does he want to appoint somebody? And what happens ultimately? For those of you out there, myself included, who are not happy with only six games for Deshaun Watson, this is good. But I wonder how much of this is PR by the NFL. Do they just want us to think that they take a tough stance when it comes to crimes uh, against women? Or do they really want to take a tough stance? We're about to find out. NFL appeal of Deshaun Watson's suspension. That's happening. Third thing in our 5 at 5, I mentioned a criminal charge. Marquise Brown, Arizona Cardinals receiver, Hollywood Brown, was arrested. And he was charged with criminal speeding this morning, early this morning. The Arizona Department of Public Safety arrested him at 7 o'clock this morning on State Route 101, which, by the way, surrounds about 75% of the Phoenix metro area. Um, how fast was this guy going? There's, We don't have that. How fast do you guys think Marquise Brown was going? I'll take say... A, take a stab. say triple digits. I'll say 100. You think a flat 100? I think it's going to be bigger than that if he was arrested for criminal speeding. Peter, you got a guess? Yeah, I'm going to say 140. 140. <laughs> yeah. Never gone that fast. Not even we, close. We don't have the exact speed, but they, they say he was going. If you go faster than 85 in a 55, you can be arrested. So it's somewhere north of 85. Uh, it'll be interesting to see. I don't mean to laugh about this because, you know, we have a case in Las Vegas where somebody died uh, as part of somebody speeding and smashing into the back of someone else. But we'll see how fast he was going. He was traded from the Ravens to the Cardinals in April. And apparently he was either late or he just likes to drive fast. Moving on. Fourth thing in our 5 at 5. Bowl games to start the season? ESPN threw this out there, and I only bring it up because ESPN controls the majority of bowl games. So ESPN is, I think, trying to float this idea. They had a team of reporters, including Adam Rittenberg, who we've had on this show, and Heather Dinich, and David Hale, and Bill Connolly, who 
who spent the offseason putting together a bunch of ideas. And then they polled other people and they talked to commissioners. But we're talking about 131 Division I schools, presidents, administrators, coaches, players that are all looking at college football going, what's going to happen? And why are there so many opt-outs during the bowl season? So how do you fix it? Well, ESPN is proposing, how about you move the bowl games from the end of the year to the beginning of the year in late summer and you kick off college football season with great matchups. So fall camps, yeah, fall camp leads you into a holiday bowl, leads you into an Alamo bowl. You know, basically ESPN is saying, let's face it, the bowl system is dead even though we own it, and how do we fix it? I don't think that's the solution. I don't think moving these games to the preseason is going to make college football fans more excited about them. I think you have to include the playoff games as part of your bowl system, and I think you have to incentivize players to play in these games by compensating players. We're in the name-image-likeness world. These bowl games have money. Usually the money goes to the universities and the conferences and the programs, paydays for the programs who get to play in the game. But imagine, you know, Oregon playing in an Alamo Bowl. Let's just suspo- uh, uh, you know, suspect like Oregon playing in an Alamo Bowl a year ago and Kayvon Thibodeau preparing for the NFL draft goes, hey, I don't want to play in this thing. A bunch of other guys say, I don't want to play in this thing. But Oregon says, you know what? Everybody who plays in this thing is getting $25,000. Suddenly... Yeah, maybe your top five draft picks are going, "Uh uh-uh, it's not enough money, not for me. But I think you would get the attention of the other players on this team. Throw some NIL money as part of the bowl season. That's my idea. ESPN, you own the bowl season. Figure it out. Finally, fifth thing in our five at five. How about Nick Saban? They won the SEC last year. They played for the national championship last year. Alabama coach Nick Saban despite winning the SEC, despite beating Cincinnati in the playoff and competing against Georgia in the national championship game, he called last year a rebuild. It was a rebuilding year. Yes, I know. They had to replace a number of starters last season. They had a quarterback who was drafted in the first round in Mac Jones. They lost Devonta Smith. You know, but... A rebuild for Alabama. He was on WJOX in Birmingham, and he said, we'll have nine starters back on offense and on defense, but we had six players who turned pro early and created a bunch of question marks. Another rebuild for Alabama. Crimson Tide are the overwhelming favorite to win the SEC this season. They open fall camp tomorrow. They start the season at home against Utah State on September 3rd. And there you have it, R5. At five. Rebuild for Nick Saban. Is he just being obnoxious or is there truth in that? Guys, kick it around. He's just being obnoxious. Yeah, I mean, there's a difference between rebuilding and retooling. I understand that Alabama wasn't its it's usual. Well, they weren't as good as they usually are last year. Like, they were kind of retooling a little bit but you're never rebuilding if you're against uh, if you're in Alabama um you know it's just it's it's retooling it's the same thing with Oregon like Oregon Mark Helfrich was was rebuilding like you know Willie Taggart was rebuilding but maybe this year if Oregon is a little bit uh you know they're not a college football playoff that's called retooling and that's what I think Alabama did last year they had a couple guys that they lost late in the year wide receivers in particular they lost late in the year that 
it hurt them. And, you know, I think they've got some young players at that position that are going to be dynamite, but they always do. But I think, you know, for us to go like that was a rebuild for Alabama, it, it is obnoxious. I think he doesn't really realize how that plays to the rest of the room when, you know, he makes the title game and he goes, well, it was kind of a rebuild. You can't say that. I think it's disrespectful to Georgia. And I think it's uh, obnoxious if you're Nick Saban. You can't say that. Let's talk about the bowl season. ESPN floating the idea on their homepage that bowl games could be played to start the season. They would reimagine the college football calendar. Is this genius or dumb? I don't like it, John. There have already been so many changes with college football. I I need my Bulls New Year's Day or thereabouts. I'm not going to get down at the beginning and watch, you know, the Peach Bowl or whatever it's going to be. I need them in the winter. Yeah, I, I think I agree. Although I could see, I could see it being fun. Like, there's always a lot of fun Week One games, and like you know, USC or excuse me, Alabama versus Texas this year, Oregon versus Georgia. So if you pair just a lot of the best teams to start the year, I could see why that would work because they kind of already do that anyways. You just attach a bull name to it. Yeah, I just I maybe it's the purest in me, but I just feel like you can't if you're playing these things at the end of the season. I mean, at the beginning of the season, not the end. Like, you're you're messing with kind of the idea that a bowl game is there to reward teams. It's the postseason, right? And and look, I want to say this. It, it You know, some of these universities that are even in the Pac-12, there's about eight teams in the Pac-12 that know they're not, they have no shot of ever making a playoff. Like, under this current format. There's no way Oregon State, under this current format, is going to the playoff, right? You have to go undefeated. There's no way Washington State is doing that. And that's kind of the Mendoza line. Like, if you're Oregon, if you're Utah, if you're UCLA or USC, maybe you can dream about the playoff. But everybody else is going, we want to have a good season. Yeah, we want to win them all. Like Jonathan Smith will say, I want to win them all. But if we're being real and we're putting everybody on a polygraph test, like the the measure of success at about eight of the 12 universities is have a really nice season, Win eight, nine, ten games if you can. That would be a home run. You get to ten wins. Be a home run to maybe get to a Rose Bowl or think about a Rose Bowl in the next couple of years. That would be, uh, you know, a massive achievement. But getting to the playoff is another animal. It's another question. And if you remove the bowl season, I think you're removing the incentive or that reward at the end of the rainbow. And and instead of removing it, I just or moving it to the beginning of the season and messing with the calendar. Why not embrace NIL all the way and just go, look, go to the bowl games and go, look, we want more players who, who declare for the draft to participate. How do we do this? Okay, can we move the bowl games up a little sooner so they happen closer to the end of the season? Like for the teams that aren't going to play in the playoff, can all the bowl games happen maybe before January 1, like, you know, before Christmas even? Let's not drag this out even any further than, you know, don't need to play an Alamo Bowl on the 30th of December like you know can we play that game on December 14th like move the bowl games up rapid fire and then let's incentivize the players okay these bowl games have millions and millions of dollars that they give to the conferences let's get that money let's funnel that money to the players how about that proposal players get paid to play in these games yeah I think uh, I think it works I mean it, it... I, I like the idea going all in on NAL and I the the bull system is broken right now with so many professional like you know professional prospects quitting on it. So I, I, I do really like the idea. I just think you know NIL might need some more guardrails before they're able to give that away to every single player, you know what I mean? 
Yeah. They they might need it. I also think like as long as we're talking about bowl games being nonprofit organizations, maybe they should be helping the athletes that, you know, help make the game a possibility. Throw them some scratch. I'm not saying Kayvon Thibodeau would have played in a meaningless bowl game for ten grand or twenty grand or whatever, but it maybe it's a conversation. Maybe it keeps some of the players in the games and they go, Yeah, I'll play for ten thousand. Why not? I, I competed in my college career for nothing. Now I'm finally gonna get paid. So, you know, maybe some of those guys stick around. I think you have to start testing that. All right, leave it here. We're gonna talk about broadcasting. Vin Scully, Bill Shonley, Dave Nihas. Who's your guy? 503-417-7575. I want to know who that play-by-play voice that really connects with you is. Leave it here. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Vin Scully passed away Last night, uh, I saw the news. Uh, My phone blew up with a bunch of friends that were all uh, lamenting the passing of a legendary broadcaster. It got me thinking about broadcasters in general, and I want to play some cuts. Uh, You know, I played earlier in in the show that, you know, Vin Scully's, part of what made him great was the storytelling, and he told the story of the guys that, you know, where are wearing beards and how there's uh, been an interesting history with beards and whether or not culturally they're accepted and emperors in Egypt and uh, the Bible and Vince Scully. I mean, he's just at his best as he's talking about all of that stuff. He's also was fantastic in a play-by-play role. Looper turns on the rubber and the 1-0 pitch on the way. Swung on and whacked to right down the line in the corner. Gone for a home run. Number 27 home runs allowed by Braden Looper for Rafael Fercal, his sixth. Vince Scully, one of those guys that really did his homework. Uh, A lot of times in the NBA Major League Baseball, you get time with the manager, you get time with the coach. And often the beat, beat reporters are, are the ones who are in visiting with the head coach or the manager before the game, after the game, talking. Uh, those who are around Vince Scully and around the Dodgers know that Vince Scully often, prior to games, made his way over to the opposing team's clubhouse and sat and visited with the opposing manager and said, what do I need to know about your team? So he could tell stories. Um, it, he was uh, an original. Vince Scully, and you heard it in his calls, and you heard it in his stories. Uh, Here's Vince Scully calling Sandy Koufax's perfect game. Listen to this call. Sandy backs off, mops his forehead, runs his left index finger along his forehead, dries it off on his left pants leg. All the while, Keen just waiting. Now Sandy looks in. Into his windup and the 2-1 pitch to Keen. Swung on and missed. Strike two. It is 9.46 p.m. Two and two to Harvey Keen. One strike away. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Swung on and missed. A perfect game. I love the detail, his left index finger, the time on the clock. That's Vin Scully at his best. Often 
imitated as well. John Miller, fantastic Giants broadcaster, uh, does a great Vin Scully impersonation and story. I mean, young broadcasters who wanted to be baseball broadcasters often uh, would try to imitate Vin Scully, figuring, well, he's the best, so I want to sound like him. And that was a tribute to Vin. Uh, and I really did not realize that his fame had spread worldwide until I went to Tokyo back in the 80s. And, uh, and I really w wanted to hear the voice of the Tokyo Giants, Genshiro Asami. And, you know, like yourself, knew of Asami-san, but I'd never heard Asami-san. So I turned on the television with a great expectation to at long last hear the legendary voice of the Tokyo Giants. And he put me off a little bit because he was doing Vinny, you know. Watashiwa Karakuin Stadium ni Orimas. Hajime Mashde Dozi Arushku Lo Ball 2. You know, it was like uh, kind of astounding, really. And uh, same thing down in Venezuela. I heard the great legendary voice of baseball in uh, Caracas, Venezuela. And he was like, uh, uh, El Partido de Baseball con Farmer Juan. Con Amberguesa con Queso. Mm -mm. <laughs> Muy mejor en todo el mundo. I love that John Miller doing Vin Scully. Who is your broadcaster? I want you to line up 503-417-7575. Uh, for Mariners fans, uh, you got, you know, Edgar Martinez at the plate. You got Dave Niehaus on the call. You know something good is likely to happen. And for, for you know, Mariners fans who for years swore that uh, the Mariners would never go anywhere. Well, they went somewhere. Dave Niehaus on the call, American League Championship Series. They would love a base hit into the gap, and they could win it with junior speed, the stretch. And the 0-1 pitch on the way to Edgar Martinez. Swung on the line, down the left field line for a base hit. Here comes Joy. Here is Junior at third base. They're going to wave him in. The throw to the plate will be late. The Mariners are going to play for the American League Championship. I don't believe it. It just continues. My, oh, my. Edgar Martinez with a double. Ripped down the left field line, and they are going crazy at the kingdom. That sent the Mariners to the American League Championship Series in 1995. Dave Niehaus was also on the call for the Grand Salami. Edgar Martinez at the plate. And John Wetland one more time set. And here comes the 2-2 pitch to Edgar Martinez now. And a fastball swung on at the deep center field. Bernie Williams goes back and it is. Get out the right bread and the mustard this time, Grandma. It is a grand salami. And the Mariners lead it 10-6. I don't believe it. Dave Niehaus in it with fans. I love that. Peter Sampson, who's your broadcaster? Yeah, my guy, without a doubt, as a Braves fan, is Skip Gary. And can I have 15 seconds to shout out Vince Foley? I just have yeah. to say, it. my dad was from Burbank. He was a Dodgers fan. And that meant 
the background to a lot of my childhood summer days was Vince Scully and that 1988 season. Uh, it was just a wonderful time with my dad. Everyone remembers the Kurt Gibson home run, but we would, everyone forgets the Oral Hershiser scoreless inning streak. He broke Don Drysdale's record and we would drive just through Yamhill County. I don't even know where we were most of the time trying to get the simulcast, the radio simulcast mm. of Vince Scully calling those games. It's some of the best memories I have with my dad. But that being said, being a Braves fan, suffering through the another partial sellout of Fulton County Stadium <laughs> with Skip Carey, 1992 NLCS Game 7, to go to the World Series, Francisco Cabrera, the last man off the bench coming up and doing this. A lot of room in right center. If he hits one there, we can dance in the streets. The 2-1. I've got chills right now. I love that. Love it. Braves win. Braves win. In it with you. I want to know, who's your broadcaster? What favorite play-by-play call do you have? 503-417-7575. Take us there with you. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Vince Scully. John Miller. We heard John Miller doing Vince Gully. But how about John Miller calling a walk-off home run in the National League Championship Series? John Miller, very good broadcaster himself. Now the stretch. Here it comes. Swing and there's a drive. Deep into right field. Way back there. Travis Ishikawa is being clobbered by his teammates as he comes down the third base line and he is mobbed at home plate. It's Travis Ishikawa. Travis Ishikawa with the Bobby Thompson moment. A walk-off home run to win the National League pennant. There it is, John Miller on the call, 2014. He has himself a little bit of a... uh, memory of the Bobby Thompson home run, the Giants win the pennant, all of that business. Who's your favorite broadcaster and why? I want to hear from you at 503-417-7575. Let's go to Ray, who's calling us from uh, Salem, Oregon, the capital. How are you, Ray? Ray in Salem. Not there. So sad. Mark in Portland. Mark, let's talk about it. Who's your broadcaster, Mark? Hey, how you doing? Uh, in baseball, it's probably going to be Joe Buck because he did the Cardinals game in 2011 against Texas, game six, when they were down to their last strike twice, down nine to seven or seven to five and nine to seven, and then Dave Freeze hit a home run and just he was just that was so perfect the way he just said, "We will see you tomorrow night" as the ball is going out, and and the crowd said it all in St. Louis. They were just going absolutely berserk. Man. Um, and then they just, there's no way that St. Louis was losing game seven in St. Louis, and they went on to win it. So it was just, the, his, he had a different uh, style than Vin Scully, who was the storyteller. And, you know, uh, um, it's just, uh, they're, they're all great. And uh, 
I think that's why he's he does the main games, Joe Buck. So I always like listening to him too. Yeah, I think there are so many um, so many broadcasters that connect in that way. And Joe Buck, legendary. If you're a Cardinals fan, that's your guy. Um, you know, uh, Ray and Salem wanted to talk about Bill King. He got cut off or disconnected, but I do have the Bill King call of the Holy Roller for those out there who remember Bill King on the Holy Roller. It's pretty damn good. The crowd takes up a chant of defense. Robisky and Banizak on the back. Slot right. Branch inside. Bradshaw, Stabler back. Here comes the rush. He sidesteps. Can he throw? He can't. The ball flipped forward is loose. A wild scramble. Two seconds on the clock. Casper grabbing the ball. It is rolled a fumble. Casper has recovered in the end zone. The Olsen Raiders have scored on the most zany, unbelievable, absolutely impossible dream of a play. Madden is on the field. He wants to know if it's real. They said yes. Get your big butt out of here. He does. There's nothing real in the world anymore. The Raiders won the football game. The Chargers are standing, looking at each other. They don't believe it. Nobody believes it. I don't know if the Raiders believe it. It's not real. 52,000 people minus a few lonely Raider fans are stunned. A man would be a fool to ever try and write a drama and make you believe it. This one will be relived forever. Forever, said Bill King. I love that. Roger is stuck in traffic. Roger, where's the traffic? Hey, John, can you hear me? Yeah, I got you. What's going on? So, you want to know what's funny? Is I was at the Holy Roller game. I was 10 years old. I was at the <laughs> Holy Roller game in San Diego. What was that like? I still can't believe. I still can't believe it happened. So you were one of those Chargers fans who was in disbelief. Still am. Still am in disbelief. <laughs> Don't believe it. I love it. Who's your broadcaster? Jerry Coleman of the Padres, longtime broadcaster of the Padres, famous for... Oh, doctor, and you can hang a star on that baby. Oh, I love that. Good stuff with Jerry. I don't know if you know him, but he uh, also known yeah. for his bloopers. Slides <laughs> into second with a stand-up double. Famous <laughs> for that always. Yeah, and you know, there's a certain element of that where you got to be forgiving with your broadcaster. Because if you ride long enough with a broadcaster, you're going to find a broadcaster who makes mistakes you're going to find a broadcaster who has a, a blooper or whatnot sean who's your broadcaster kevin harlan's my guy uh he's a national guy but uh he's he's my favorite and he's someone that um i haven't broadcast in a while since college but he's someone that i always try to emulate my own broadcasting i have a clip ready if you want it yeah let's do it walking he's walking to the three he's at the two and the cat is in the cdw red zone cd W people who get it now, a policeman, a state trooper has come on the field, and the cat runs into the end zone. That is a touchdown. And the cat is elusive, kind of like Barkley and Elliott. But he didn't know where to go. Look at, they're trying to corner him, and they got him in the end zone. There are state troopers all around this cat, which now climbs up into the stands, and the fans are running for their line. Now it goes back on the field again. And it's running in the back of the end zone. There's Harlan calling. He was calling a cat there, wasn't he? Calling the cat. Yeah, running that's right. Field. Exactly. Yeah, phone line's yeah. going nuts. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, answer the phones. Uh, good call. I would rather have him call a play-by-play. -play. How about the, the Titans broadcaster? We had this cat on the game. 
uh, on the show, rather. Uh, and it was interesting because Marcus Mariota, when he went into the league, uh, went into the Tennessee Titans, obviously. But uh, we ended up having, I think it was Mike Keith, who was the play-by-play announcer uh, for the Titans games on radio. Uh, we got to hear some of his clips, and I became a huge Mike Keith fan. Mariota drops, steps up. He can run a long way. 15, 20, 25, 30, 35, 40, 45, 50, 45, 30, 25, 20, 15, 10, 5, and zone. 87 yards. And, and he's moonlighting. Like, this isn't his full-time thing as a play-by-play announcer. Uh, he, he's just fantastic. I love that. I grew up on the San Francisco Giants, and if you did as well, you know Lon Simmons was the longtime Giants radio play-by-play broadcaster. He also called some 49ers games. But I have this clip of Lon Simmons, and this is where I think you really elevate as a broadcaster. As, as Sean played Kevin Harlan, calling the cat running across the field. I think it was like a Thursday night football game. Uh, and Harlan could call, break into play-by-play on a cat running on the football field. Lon Simmons calling a fight on the baseball field is about as good as it gets. It's like Bill Shonley when Daryl Dawkins and Maurice Lucas squared off. Shonley went right from basketball broadcaster into boxing broadcaster. Listen to Lon Simmons as Willie Mays slides into second base. Shea bluffs now. Now throw to second base, and Mays is back in. And now Jacon starts hitting Mays. Mays jumps on him, and Zepeda and Craig are at it. Zepeda and Craig, and Zepeda gets in a left hook. Boy, we've got a brawl at second base as Chacon started hitting Mays on top of the head as they were lying there. Mays picked Chacon up and threw him on the ground. Zepeda swung a left hook and almost decked Craig. We've got ball players all over there. Russ, I don't know what that was about. Mays slid into second, and Chacon just started hitting him on the head, and Mays picked Chacon up and threw him down on the ground. Zepeda came over and swung a beautiful left hook that nailed Roger Craig right on the button. Uh, Lon, I've seen some good ones, but this is the best when they get squared off individually like that. It's the first time I've ever seen Mays throw a punch. And after uh, Chacon hit him, Mays tagged him once and picked him up and bounced him around on the ground. Then Cepeda went for Craig and uh, gave him as good a left hook as I have ever seen. There you go, Willie Mays throwing punches, Lon Simmons on the call. 503-417-7575 is the number. i got two lines open. I want you to weigh in. Tell me about your broadcaster. Who is your broadcaster? Vin Scully passed away yesterday. Ari's in Portland. Ari, who you got? Yo, I appreciate you doing this, man, because, uh, you know, we wouldn't have sports without these announcers. And uh, born and raised here in Portland, i got to give a shout-out to Wheels, man. I, I truly think he was one of the best. I know everyone's a homer for their own announcer, but yeah. that guy, I mean, he had the passion and the love for the Blazers. He had, you know, all the little phrases and, and yeah. the little, you know, he had the style, but nobody described the basketball game as well as he did. You could picture the whole thing in your head. He talked fast, but clearly, I mean, I've just, no one, no one has replaced him. I've listened to, to basketball games all over the country on the radio and uh, no one's the same. Uh, I think the dude doesn't get enough credit. I loved Wheels. Um, he turned me into a Blazers fan. So 
Thanks yeah, I'm going to play this. All right, I'm going to play this. I want you to stay on air here. I would right. love that. We'll do. Right. We'll do. All right. You're going to love this one. Blake to inbound. The Blazers have a 20-second timeout. Nate McMillan deciding whether to use it. Blake now throws to Roy. Brandon, a three-pointer out front. Hit him! Yes, he did! Oh, yeah! Wow! Are you kidding me? The yes, natural, sir. the natural buries a 30-footer at the buzzer. And the Blazers run off the court. A winner by two. I could hear your joy, Ari. No doubt. Appreciate that. Yeah, Thank you. love it. All right, there it is. Brian Wheeler on the call. James and Eugene listening on Fox Sports, Eugene. James, what do you got? What is going on? Hey, so, John, I got a couple for you. Okay. John Miller, being a Giants fan. Oh, yeah. I swear, at one point in time, I used to enjoy watching or listening to baseball as a Giants fan uh, more than watching it because he did such a great job. Um, Let me Jerry play. Allen. All right, hang on. You're gonna get it. You'll get more, but I'm gonna play a John Miller cut. All right, here you go. The one-one pitch. He swings and he bounces one. Deep center field. Jack Hughes going back and no! the home run. Number three for Pablo Sandoval. His first three at bats in this World Series, and Pablo Sandoval looks like the babe himself has come back to life. <laughs> there it is, John Miller on the call. Pablo Sandoval looked like Babe Ruth. Yes, he did. That panda could run, actually. But, hey, uh, and then Jerry Allen, obviously the pick, is one of my favorite calls of all time. And then um, when you were talking about Shaughnessy, you were so right. You've played that clip hella times. You don't have to play it again. Yeah. But if you do, that's great. But when he breaks into it, it, it goes from basketball to boxing in, like, two seconds. Yes. I love how quickly he just jumps into, like, and he throws the right jab. And he's, it's just like, he just, like, I don't know how he picked it up so quick, but it was awesome. It, it's, so that's what it's I got. In, it's interesting because in that moment, and I'm going to play it here again, but in that moment, like, we all know it's difficult to do what these guys are doing at the highest level. But then when something so far away from basketball starts to happen on the court, there's a fight that breaks out. Just listen to what Bill Shonley does here. Into Gilliam, put it up, doesn't drop. Dawkins the rebound, along with Bob Host. And now Daryl Dawkins. Oh, look at Ramsey. He, oh, here we go. We got a fight. Now Lucas hits Daryl Dawkins from behind. We got a good one. Dawkins and Lucas. Here we go. Here's a right-handed punch by Lucas. Now Dr. J gets a hold of Lucas. And Ramsey is right after Daryl Dawkins. Ramsey has a hold of Dawkins. Now away from that, we have a fight out. There it is, James and Eugene. Jerry Allen, brother. Play it. All right, here we go. Kenny Wheaton's going to score going into the commercial break. And I want more of your phone calls. 503-417-7575. You are going to go back to throw the ball. Sets up, looks, throws toward the corner of the end zone. It is intercepted. Intercepted. The Ducks have the ball. Down to the 35, the 40. Kenny Wheaton's going to score. Kenny Wheaton is going to score. 20. That's in. Touchdown. Kenny Wheaton on the interception. You've got the home of the truth. 
back to the bald faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I want your broadcaster. Tell me who your broadcaster is. What moves the needle for you? 503 417 7575. Go to the phone lines. Uh, John in Beaverton. John, welcome to the program. How are you? Hi, good. John, uh, great show. Thank you. Um, well, I grew up in the Bay Area, too, so Bill King and Long Simmons were up there. But the reason I said Joe Starkey, because that game, if you have the highlight of that Stanford Cal oh. game with the Bayman on the field, he was going completely eight. It was amazing to me growing growing up in the Bay Area, getting a chance. You know, I grew up, and then years and years later, I got to cover some Niner and Raider games and Stanford and Cal games. And suddenly, I looked up, and you know, Joe Starkey is uh, part of that part of the uh, broadcast crew, and he's in the press box still to this day. When I see uh, Joe Starkey, I'm like, man. Uh, you know, it, it's you know, it's like hearing a piece of your childhood. Let's see if I got Joe Starkey. Something is about. I don't know if I have it there. Let's see here. Uh, let me see if I can pull it up. Not sure I got it. I'm gonna try. I'm gonna try to get it. Dang, I thought I had it. Uh, Peter Sampson, each shot you got uh, the big game. Cal Stanford, the uh, call. I'm looking. I'm not Joe finding Starkey. it yet. Joe Starkey. I'm gonna pull it up here. I know I have it. So I'm, just bear with me. But when you get an iconic moment like that, and I'm going to play a couple more that maybe are lesser heard. It's just the passion of the broadcaster. It's the disbelief in Dave Niehaus's voice when he hears, um, you know, that call uh, or he sees Edgar Martinez hit the home run. And, and you have, uh, you know, the band on the field and you're Joe Starkey. Man, it's like it's, it's the biggest thing, the biggest, the biggest game. So I'll, I will pull that up and I'll see if I can find it. I thought I had it, Stanford, Cal, Joe Starkey, and I, I am struggling to find it. I don't want it to hold the show up here, so we'll come back to it. But if uh, if you guys, one of you guys wants to pull that up, then we can do it as well. But let's go I'm back to the uh, – Sean's going to grab it. Let's go back to the phone lines. Uh, Rick is in Beaverton. I think Rick's got one. Rick, what do you got? Well, I'm sure you don't have a clip of this guy. And, by the way, I love your columns every day. Thank you. Um, Appreciate you. When I was a little kid, I'm 71. When I was a little kid, I used to listen to Bob Blackburn, who uh, broadcast the Beavers out of Multnomah Stadium then, mm. and the uh, Buckaroos out of Memorial Coliseum. And I'd that. go at night, have my little transistor on, and tell my dad or mom and come in and tell me to shut it off. But he really got me started loving sports, and uh, and it was just it's just a great memory. I love that. It, and you know what? It doesn't have to be like a household name of a broadcaster. And frankly, it could just it, whoever your guy is, it's your guy. You know, Sean, you let me know when you got that big game clip. Got it now. Oh, you got it. Let's hear it. John and Beaverton, this is for you. Harmon will probably try to squib it, and he does. Ball comes loose, and the Bears have to get out of bounds. Rodgers along the sideline, another one. They're still in deep trouble at midfield. They tried to do a couple of... The ball is still loose as they get it to Rogers. They give it back now to the 30. They're down to the 20. Oh, the band is out on the field. He's going to go into the end zone. He's going into the end of the Bears have won. The Bears have won. Oh, my God. The most amazing, sensational, dramatic, heart-rending, 
Exciting, thrilling finish in the history of college football. There it is, Joe Starkey. And if you weren't there, you wouldn't have believed it. Uh, I got one for you. I mean, look, we talk all the time about great broadcasters caring about their team. Mike Parker, voice of Oregon State. He loves Oregon State. He He's in it with the fans. I've told him numerous times I am a big Mike Parker fan because I think he exemplifies the passion of fan the, that fan base. He, he gets it. They get him. They're soulmates. Uh, Mike Parker calling a Oregon State baseball game was not happy with the umpires. And I love this call because I think it just sort of epitomizes the broadcaster being in, in it with the fans. Tyler Smith has an RBI single in the game, and he's hit by the first pitch and just simply runs down to first. Oregon is going to ask, uh, did he offer on the butt attempt? And he certainly didn't. Oh, I think they're going oh, to they're say, he say he did. And Pat no, Casey, here comes Casey. No, they say they called a strike. Uh, the first that base umpire called a strike, I believe. That is a terrible call, folks. That is a, a, a horrendous call. They are saying that Pat Casey offered, and he's been ejected. Are you me? I, I believe that Pat Casey has already been ejected. Whatever he said to home plate umpire, he said it fast. That is a horrendous call. Absolutely horrendous. And Pat Casey is all over the first base umpire, Scott Latendre. Tyler Smith was turning to butt and got drilled by the pitch. His bat never went across the plate. And Scott Latendre calls a strike and throws Pat Casey out of the game. And Casey's all over the home plate umpire, Brent Cunningham. And I don't blame him either. He doesn't need any help on that call. That's a hit batsman, Jimmy. That's a terrible call. I love that call. And I know Mike Parker has told me before that, like, it's not his favorite moment. He got swept up into the emotion. I mean, he was a little embarrassed by it. I'm, I don't think he should be. I think it just sort of epitomizes and exemplifies the fact that he's in it with fans all the way. I don't mind that. Uh, Mike is in Salem. Mike, you're going to get the last one. Mike, who's your broadcaster? Hey, John. Thanks for taking my call. I wanted to say that I do love your show. That When you have your wife on there and you just talk about day-to-day -day stuff, that's what makes radio what it is, like Thank Tom Colbert and others in the Bay Area. I appreciate um, that. I already heard my favorite, Adios Pelosa. But growing up in the Philadelphia area, I'd like to hear a little Richie Ashburn. Oh man, Richie Ashburn, like that—that's a reach. We're gonna—we're gonna have to dig into the dig into the. He surprised me with that one. Have to dig into the database on it. Here's what I'm gonna finish with. I'm gonna finish with Harry Carey, uh, legendary Cubs broadcaster. I don't know what the big deal about Cracker Jack is. Did you ever go and buy a pack of Cracker Jack thinking you'd get a prize and find no prize <laughs> in the box? Here's the pitch. That might not sound important to some people, but when, you, when you're a little kid, especially from humble origin, and they cheat you out of a prize, there's a bouncing ball. Second baseman has the Barbary over the first. It's hard to think in laudatory terms of the product. <laughs> I think if there was an occasional box of Cracker Jacks that found no prizes for uh, the, the, for the little Harry Carey many years ago. <laughs> you got that right. <laughs> that boy went a box of Cracker Jack to me meant a lot of money. Here's a pitch bounce foul. That's the most asinine marketing I've ever heard of. 
one ball, one strike. These guys say, well, you you sing about Cracker Jack. I said, that I only sing it because it's in the song. Harry Carey, Cubs broadcaster. I love that. Talking Cracker Jacks. Peter Sampson, what's coming up here on the game? Man, more tributes to Vin Scully, and we continue previewing the Pac-12. I love it. I want you to leave it here. Peter Sampson ahead.